0: ho ho hello Hmm, that worked better on paper than it's actually sounded but never mind Welcome to another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to science teacher Adam Boxer about explanations, silence, retrieval, feedback, and so much more. I promise you, it is a good one. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music this episode of the mr barton maths podcast is proudly supported by the loughborough university mathematics education network better known as lumen now i love a bit of lumen I've been lucky enough to run a live session and an on-demand session as part of my involvement as a visiting fellow in the Mathematics Education Centre. And as regular listeners may remember, I also recorded the two series of Research in Action podcasts featuring researchers from Loughborough University. Well, I'm here today to remind you that Lumen provides members with completely free CPD resources and events aimed at teachers of mathematics from early years and primary into secondary and further education by focusing on practical ways of applying mathematics education research in the classroom. And wait until you hear about some of the sessions that are online now and ready to dive into. Now, I'll just pick out a few here. There's Designing Mathematical Tasks for Deeper Understanding with friend of the podcast, Chris McGrain. Supporting Spatial Reasoning in the Early Years with friend of the podcast, Dr. Helen Williams. There's Using Tasks Richly with John Mason, also friend of the podcast. Maths Anxiety, Is It a Real Thing with Christoph Chopra? How Mixed Attainment Groupings Affects the Way Students Experience Mathematics. These are all by friends of the podcast. That one's by uh, Tom Frankham. There's absolutely loads of sessions. As you'll see, they cover a diverse range of topics that can be integrated into classroom teaching at any level straight away. These resources really are for everyone. Now, as soon as COVID allows, who knows when that'll be, Lumen will resume their program of face-to-face live CPD events in Loughborough and also at the lovely Loughborough University campus in London. So keep an eye on the website for details and make sure you register as a member of the network. It's all completely free so that they can keep you informed about future opportunities. So you can find out more about Lumen and the resources they have available at www.lb. O-R-O, it's hard to say that, forward slash Lumen. Don't worry, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And join the network today. Back to today's episode with Adam Boxer. Adam is the Head of Science at the Totteridge Academy... He's co-founder of Carousel Learning and he's the author of Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide. Adam is a strong advocate of cognitive science and explicit instruction and he cameoed on the podcast during my Teaching from Home series during the first lockdown. I've been a huge fan of Adam's writing both in the form of blogs and tweets for many years and the release of his book marked the perfect opportunity to get him back on the show for a proper long chat. Over the course of nearly three hours, we discussed the following and plenty more besides. What makes a good explanation? What role does silence play in Adam's lessons and how has this changed over the years? Is it important that maths and science departments work together and if so, how? What role does technology have to play in terms of retrieval? We talked about observation feedback, engaging with research and so much more. It is an absolute cracker this. Whatever your style of teaching, experience or subject, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Now, I've nothing actually to plug this week, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to say a massive thank you to everyone for listening to this show over the last six years. Yep, December 2021 marks the six-year anniversary of the first episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. Now, if you want to support the show, then the very best thing you can do is to add a review, ideally a positive one, on the podcast platform of your choice... Maybe you could also recommend an episode to a friend that you think they'll like. Perhaps this one if you've got any uh, non-maths colleagues, if you're a maths teacher. And if you really want to push the boat out, then I do have a Patreon page set up where you can make a donation to support the show, and there's a link to that in the show notes. None of these are necessary. I'm just very thankful people still listen to me babble on after all these years. Anyway, without further ado, here is Adam Boxer. In jo- oh, I should say, just before Adam comes on... I'll tell you what, we uh, the language takes an absolute downturn about an hour into this show. Um, Adam asks if he's allowed to swear. I make the mistake of saying yes, and then it all goes uh, downhill from then on. So if you've got young children listening to this, you might just want to cover their ears uh, a little bit later on. But it all adds to it. It all adds to it. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I'll see you on the other side. Okay, Adam, so we start the show as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Have you ever had any other chemists on the show? Oh, good question. No, I'm going to say definitely not, actually. Okay,
1: because uh, there's only one answer as far as chemists are concerned. It's 6.02 times 10 to 23.
0: <sighs> Tell me more.
1: Well, 6.02 times 10 to the 23 is the Avogadro number. It's named for Lorenzo Romano, Medeo Carlo, Avogadro, Count of Corregna and Coretto. Yeah, serious guy. Yeah, he's uh, he was an Italian chemist uh, and he was working on like gas particles, I think, and stuff. Um, but basically when he was doing that, nobody was interested in his work um, because he was Italian. Uh, And back then, if you wanted to be a chemist, you had to be British, uh, so English or Scottish uh, or French. I think the first wave of great chemists were French. And then after that, they were English and Scottish. And because he was Italian, he was pretty much ignored. Um, But then uh, later on, they named this number, this 6.02 times 10 to 23 after him um kind of I guess in honor I think I think I've got the story right there'll be a listener out there who told me I've got it wrong but I don't care it's a good story anyway um and essentially it's the it's the magic number that bridges the gap between the tiny world of things and the big world of things so chemists have to kind of hop between those two worlds the whole time uh, because we are constantly talking about structure and bonding which exists on the tiny tiny world so about how atoms connect up to each other but then also talk about properties which is something that exists on the big world you know so if uh, if a metal is malleable so easy to bend yeah so that's something that only exists in the big world individual atoms aren't malleable it's a property of billions and billions of them all together that emerges so we're constantly having to hop between those worlds and 6.02 times 10 to 23 is the number that allows us to do so so if you look in the periodic table um, take a simple example carbon yeah it's got a mass number of 12 so at first we teach students that that number means it's got uh, 12 protons plus neutrons so it's got six protons six neutrons in the nucleus it's got mass number of 12 uh, but as time goes on we uh, we reveal to them that if you um, add if you take a carbon atom and you put it in a like on a, on a balance on a scale it doesn't have any weight at all because you could never read something that small you keep adding atoms you keep adding atoms you keep adding millions billions billions zillions of them and eventually something starts to show on the balance and then when the number on the balance gradually increases 0.01 0.02 0.1 0.2 0.3 4 1 gram 2 grams 3 grams you keep adding keep adding 4 grams 5 grams more 6 7 8 9 10 more grams 11 grams 12 grams and you stop at 12 grams and you've added 6.02 times 10 to 23 atoms and that is the way that that number connects us from the periodic table to the world of uh, observable things. So 12 grams of carbon contains 6.02 times 10 of 23 atoms of carbon. 16 grams of oxygen atoms contain 6.02 times 10 of 23 oxygen atoms. So that th- those numbers on the periodic table are connected Um uh, kind of connected to the to the they connect the tiny world to the big world via that number six point oh two times ten to twenty three. We call that number of things
0: a mole. Geez, I, th- I think there's a danger you've peaked at the first question here, Adam, because that is oh, that sorry. is yeah, it could be downhill after that. That's a, an excellent answer. I'm always reluctant to ask follow up questions in speed dating rounds because it could this could be at the podcast. Uh, in its entirety but I just want to ask you one there and it strikes me we're going to be talking about similarities between our two disciplines as as the conversation goes but it strikes me that both maths and science have quite a rich interesting history to them as you've kind of demonstrated with that example there is that an important part of your teaching well when you're introducing something digging into the historical context where discoveries were made and so on
1: um yeah I think so uh it's it's uh, what what fancy curriculum theorists call hinterland isn't it it's the stuff that like makes the subject come alive most of the time that stuff is not contained within the core content of the course yeah. with small exceptions so we have to teach the the history of the atomic model um so we have to teach about the plum pudding model of the atom we have to teach about john dalton's model of the atom why did they pick those things for us to teach about i have absolutely no idea somebody at some point decided that what children really need to know about was the the plum pudding model of the atom um I, honestly i just beggar's belief uh someone at some point decided that chadwick discovered the neutron huh. who discovered electrons no idea who discovered <laughs> protons no idea who discovered neutrons chadwick right. we'll have you know 80% of 16-year-olds uh, in the country know that Chadwick discovered the neutron they don't know what Chadwick's first name was they don't know when they don't know when he lived they don't know anything about him but they know that he discovered the neutron so there is some stuff there that like creeps into the main body of the course but most of it is is uh, is filler is the wrong word because it's not filler it's yeah. it's it's what makes the subject come alive It's what makes it interesting it's what you choose to ground yes. uh, your story and it's so much more compelling Uh, when, when student, you know, I'm telling, I'm telling a story the whole time in class, I'm trying to explain something, it's telling a story, there's a narrative arc. And part of that is showing students like how important it is to me personally. Uh, And it's not like, and you can go too far. You know, there are some teachers who don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this needs to be, there needs to be uh, every spec point needs to have some kind of hinterland associated with it. You can go crazy over this stuff. Um, My, you know, my suggestion is always to use a smattering of things uh, and especially things that mean something to you. Uh, so I talk about, so I don't talk about Avogadro with uh, a GCSE, but I do talk about him with uh, A-level because I think it's important. Like a lot of my A-level students are going to go on to study the sciences. Mm-hmm. And uh, we like to think that science is this kind of cool and objective um, study of reality. But the uh, the history has been, has been uh, what's the word, uh, like held down, bogged down uh, and hampered significantly by the fact that people people's ideas were just disregarded not based on the content of those ideas but simply where that person originated from um and I think that's that's an important message to teach the students uh and there are there you know there I have a few I have a few up my sleeve that tend to get rolled out year on year
0: got it fantastic okay well speed dating question number two Adam what was your favorite topic in maths as a student
1: it's a good question I am I so I did maths A level, um, and I I was always I was always decent at maths. I was one of those kids who um, maths A level is one of those things where like if you if you can do maths, you can get maths A level easy mm. peasy. And you know I scored very highly in all my modules, but I always knew I was not a mathematician, right? So I didn't do I didn't do further maths, um, and it's not that I didn't enjoy maths. I did enjoy maths, but I knew that I had like a limit. Um, so I didn't do further maths and when I was at school I really enjoyed um, geometry and especially circle theorems and I think <laughs> probably because of like the problem solving element it's like you've got to work out this then that then that then that then that then that then that then, that, then yeah. bam <laughs> you've got x and it's like really cool when you you know you get to that point and, um, I, and actually last year I accidentally got lumbered with um, there was a Intervention year eleven morning intervention maths lesson going on in my lab my office adjoins the lab and I think there was like a fight in the playground or something the deputy head just like had to leg it outside and was like Mr Boxer just take over and I I like wandered in and it was a circle theorem and I was like oh yeah (laughs) and and obviously like I couldn't remember anything at all and I just like I absolutely brute forced it I was like let me I'm going to draw a line here and I'm going to draw a line there what what about this can I do that and like eventually I got to the right answer and uh, this teacher came back in and he was like. Like, that's <laughs> like the ugliest method ever. He was like, you've got to skip this step, this step, this step, this step, this step. I'm like, leave me alone. Like, it's been literally 12 years. Uh, but then when I finished school, so I took I took two gap years um, after school. And then I did a chemistry degree uh, at UCO. And it's compulsory to do, so you do four credits across the year. It's compulsory to do half a credit in maths. And there's a course called Mathematics for Scientists. Uh, but they set you. Uh, and because I had an A at A-level maths, um, and this was before the days of A-star, um, because I had an A in old currency A-level maths, they put me in the top set. Now, the top set didn't have to do half a credit. It had to do a whole credit. Oh. Uh, this was not this was not good news for me. The reason why it was not good news for me is because everybody else in the top set had done further maths, and I hadn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the first two weeks of the course were with uh, the great Hannah Fry. Um, who is now the BBC um, maths guru. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was amazing, and we were all desperately in love with her. And um, (laughs) she basically summarised further maths in two weeks. And I was like, yeah, this this is not going to fly. So that was pretty torturous, but I did enjoy, and I've always enjoyed the big picture stuff. So when she was doing... real and imaginary numbers which for me was brand new and for a lot of the my peers was not but she was like desperately trying to explain uh the importance of imaginary numbers without saying that they were real (laughs) she was like she's like it's it's like it's and everyone's like yeah but they're not real are they she's like no they're not real but they are like (laughs) (laughs) so that you know that was pretty fun so i've always enjoyed stuff like that um now I don't really get a chance to practice much kind of exciting maths. Mostly it's mostly now I do algebra rearrangements um, and ratio type stuff.
0: And we might get on to talking about that later on. But again, I'm, I'm going to go off on another tangent here, Adam. Big risk this, but I'm going to go for it. You said something dead interesting then. You said you were good at maths, but not a mathematician. Well, what's the difference there? Well, what's a mathematician?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, like Some people really like maths. They love it, yeah. So, And pe- the people who do maths at university... I generally, I guess, really enjoy maths. Recreational mathematicians. Mm. Um, I think that's. I think that's something that that a lot of people don't realise that some people practice maths for yeah. fun um, yeah. and yeah. as recreation. And I was lucky enough in my not not in my current school. We've only just started. Our sixth form. In my last school, I worked with a lot of very, very, very talented mathematicians. Um, I was the Oxbridge coordinator, and we got four students um into study maths in that wow. year group into Cambridge, we've got 13 in total which was you know it was three times the number we got the previous year we we're really proud of it they worked really hard and they were really really good mathematicians but like they loved maths yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they would they would do maths in their spare time um because they thought it was fun in the same way that I think logging on to Halo and shooting aliens is fun <laughs> yeah you know, it's yeah. different strokes with different folks unfortunately yeah, yeah. they don't offer a degree uh interviewing aliens more's a pity um i think you probably get better take up a university but uh but anyway so that's digressing for sure but yeah so it's just um yeah i I knew it wasn't for me i knew i didn't want to study it even though i've quite enjoyed it
0: got it fantastic and final speed dating question adam Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education yeah i i I have no
1: idea um look i haven't had any other job you know i I took two years out and I wasn't working. I was studying um, in Israel. I did my university degree and like, I did some like temp, like admin roles in the summer and things like that. And then I was straight into Mm -hmm. applying for PGC. So I don't know. I got, um, it was touch and go for me actually, because I got rejected from the first two places I applied for and, and it hit me like quite hard. Um, And, um, I was basically ready to sack it off. And I had one more place that on my list. And I was like, look, if they don't if they don't accept me, I'll do something else. But even then, I had no idea what the something else was. Mm. Um, I imagine um, some of your listeners may know I'm I'm an Orthodox and practicing Jew. Um, and I imagine that I would have ended up doing something in the community, but that probably would have been in education. So, you know, we do a lot of adult education in the community, a lot of uh, outreach, uh, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Uh, I, I
0: really don't know. Got it. Fantastic. OK. Um, now, you've touched upon your career a little bit in some of your answers. You've teased this a little bit, but let's let's go for the full thing, Adam. So uh, briefly describe the steps involved in your career to get into where you are today.
1: I mean, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to narrow this down. I mean, look, Craig, I'm a textbook narcissist. I could talk about myself for hours. You don't want that. Your <laughs> listeners don't want that. So go so tell me where you want me to start.
0: All right. Uh well go go for it. So pick us up from um well yeah let, let's go from the end of uni.
1: Okay, so at the end of uni I did a PGC at the University of Hertfordshire, which is close to me. I live in North London, so Hearts was, you know, 20 minute drive. Um I had a, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um I instantly became a ginormous edu nerd. Um and I was um I was very much the caricature of the like young hip flashy whizzy bangy type teacher who just wanted to try everything and do all the games and all the laptops and all the posters and all the quote carousels and all the group works and all the thinking hats and all the taxonomies I didn't just stop at one I had several taxonomies
0: What what Um, is this Adam just to put it this was 2013 2013 this is your pgc is
1: 2013 pgc was 2013 um i finished my pgc and got my first job at a uh, big jewish school in kenton which again is london uh 2050 students nice big school um they were going through some interesting times at the time that we won't go into now um and but i was again textbook nqt like gunning for outstanding do you remember the days yeah, yeah. when they're still grading lessons mm-hmm. I imagine some people are still doing that by the way but they were still grading lessons and I was always you know, gunning for that outstanding that kind of thing um and yeah I mean obviously like my students weren't learning anything because I was just fanning around with discovery and inquiry um and just getting them busy um and like I'm just not convinced that they learned anything um then but, but but what's really important is that nobody ever told me that Nobody ever came in and was like, well, "Adam, have you have you tried just you know telling them stuff?" Um, it was very much like the air that was breathed. Um, it was just like perfectly normal. Um, I was praised for that kind of thing. People say, "Oh yeah, go get you know go watch Adam with the plickers. It's really interesting yes. stuff." You know that kind of.
0: Thing. How did it feel, at the time, Adam? Did did you get a sense that the kids weren't learning as much as they could, or did it all just feel pretty good? I mean, it's just it's
1: not it's not even a like a, a good understanding of the word learning. Yeah, as long as they were busy and doing things, yeah, it was okay, all good. Yeah.
0: And, but um, I assume they get decent test scores and stuff and decent exams. Yeah, Great. despite me. <laughs> You're right, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, uh, there, there's all sorts of things that go into a student's test results. And remember, you know, even even back then, so now it's even more stark. But back then, you know, you didn't need to get that many marks on a GCSE mm. science paper in order to get a decent grade. You know, nowadays, a kid can know less than half of the course and yeah. still get fives and sixes. Yeah, same in maths. You know, yeah. so, I mean if you say did they learn anything all they needed to do was learn half the course yeah. and you know they're in a strong position so a lot of wasted time um and it was about like i said i was a massive nerd and i was reading everything i could get my you know, grubby little pedagogical pedagoo friday magical fingers on um and i read the test cover to cover every week and i read i used to like this guy there was this this guy called tom bennett who um Used to write a behavior column yeah, in, yeah. The, uh, in the test back then. I used to like his. And there was another guy whose name I've forgotten. Uh, what was his name? Someone will tell me. Um, View from the Chalk Face, this old primary head teacher. I used oh, to write yes. Articles. Yes. Remember I know the one
0: you mean? I do know the one you mean. Yes. <sighs> yeah.
1: I used to love his stuff. Um, and every so often there was some article bashing this fusty old uh, traditionalist didactic uh, sage on the stage type teaching. And I was like, well, I'm glad I don't do any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Anyway, at one point I was reading this article by this guy called Tom Bennett. Um, and he said you should get on that. He said that teachers should get on Twitter. And um, I actually had a Twitter account that I'd used weirdly to... Um, uh, try and get uh, actually I'm not gonna go into it because it's a completely insane story. But anyway, I ended up on Twitter and got into this edu Twitter business. What kind um, of year or,
0: when are we talking now, Adam? Do you reckon? 2013 14
1: 2014 slash 2015, my NQT year. Got it, yeah. Um, and then started reading blogs by these guys called Greg Ashman and David Didow and Carl Hendrick. Um and slowly I started um realizing I might be wrong. Uh, about literally everything and then at one point I read the um, 2014 What Makes Great Teaching by the mm. Sutton Trust, uh, Lee Elliott Major, Rob Coe etc that is now it's now got revamped as the great teaching toolkit by mm. Evidence-Based Education uh, which is by the way excellent yeah. um, but the 2014 document is still brilliant and they've got um, they talk about what things make a great teacher but they also talk about things which make a rubbish teacher and um some of those I knew about like one was learning stars and i would never gone in for learning stars because I'd always been taught that that was nonsense so I was, I was fine with that one I was reading this thing and I'm like yeah learning stars is a load of nonsense I know all about that one and then the next one was that discovery learning is likely to be completely ineffective and I was like well hang on because mm. uh, that's what I did the whole time discovery inquiry projects all of that uh, research and, um, they've got, they hit like two sentences and that was it and it just said, yeah, it doesn't work. See Kushner, 2006. And I was like, right, well, I'm going to look up this Kushner business and I go online and it's got three and a half thousand citations at the time. It's gone up by miles now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was like, well, hang on a second. I'd never, I'd, and I read a lot of edu researchy type stuff. I've never seen anything that had anywhere close to that kind of hit count. Um, I now know there are now I now know there are a couple of pieces that that have that kind of attraction. Uh, you know, I think um, Lee Shulman's 1986 one uh, about pedagogical content knowledge mm. uh, that's that's got like you know thirty thousand citations or something. But most of them, most you know, the, a friend of mine he um, he he worked. <laughs> he's such a loser. He worked out how many education research pieces are published each year. Um, and then looked at the number of citations and the modal number of citations for an education research paper is zero by miles. Yeah. So, so then I, I read this article and I'm like, and, and it's talking about randomized control trials. And I'm like, well, hang on. This isn't how you do education research. Education research is about, you know, sitting around chatting to a kid after <laughs> observing a lesson. It's like, this is madness. Um, but it was a gateway drug big time. Um, and why minimal guidance during instruction, uh, is not effective. The failure of constructivist and problem-based learning. And it's a total polemic. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Right. I know it's a polemic. I'm fully aware of the fact that it's a polemic, um, people are like, yes, yeah, but it's such a, you know, it's so biased. I'm like, yeah, okay. they don't make any pretenses mm. yet, like read the title It is. Co- Clearly, a polemic. They know what they're doing, but like it's drawing on randomized control trials. So I look up the randomized control trials. And I'm like, oh my God, these things are like based in actual science and actual evidence. Uh, and the, the most annoying thing was that I'd been suckered. I've been absolutely suckered and i would spent such a long time, you know, online as a internet troll, not troll, but like an, an internet warrior against anti-vaxxers and homeopathy. And that was like an important part of my identity as a science person. Um, and I'd, you know, I'd read bad science by Ben Goldacre mm. when I was like 16 and it had a massive impact on me. And then I was like, Oh my God, I've been suckered. I've done all of this absolute nonsense. Um, and that was all kind of really kicked off in my second year, uh, so my NQT plus one year, which was 13, 14, 14, 15, 15, 16. Um, but, he, but, but, like, and, but it took me a long time to like fully um, about face. So actually in my second year of teaching, uh, we had these blue sky performance management targets. Do you know blue sky? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. So we had all these so. performance management targets. I'm blessed now. I'm at a school where we don't do performance <laughs> management targets because they're obviously ridiculous mm. when you take a step back and think about it. And so one target was always about... Um, uh, data or something. Yep. One target was always about something to do with the department, Um, and one target was free. And my target in my second year of teaching was to do more group work.
0: Right. Yeah? Okay. Yeah.
1: And yep. now i can very safely say that i've not done any group work for about six years um, <laughs> that's not there's not and by the way just just to be really clear like that's not necessarily a thing about group work my RMS department at school uses mm-hmm. tons of group work and their results are literally off the charts they have yes. the seventh highest progress rate in the country um so i'm not going to besmirch group work but i'm definitely going to besmirch the way that i practice group work yeah. like they are incredibly skilled teachers i'm simply not skilled enough to do what they do uh that's fine that's fine they don't have a problem with the way that i teach I Have a problem with the way that they teach we both have something to learn from each other um but it does you know as as far as just like the simple picture goes the group work that i was doing was categorically rubbish um, and i thought it was ace um So, yeah, anyway, I moved schools another couple of times. I'm now head of department at um, the Tottenham Academy, which is an absolutely magnificent school uh, in North London. And it's my third year there um, and they have not been easy years. Um, We're kind of a rapidly improving school. So when I joined the year that I joined, there were five science teachers. The previous year, there'd been two and and yeah, so I say two and a half. One of them had joined halfway through the year. One of them was an experienced teacher. And one of them was had been in their first year as a teach first. So it's not exactly, you know, the the stablest of ships to begin with. And then we had my first year there was, was really, really tough. We were moving houses and had some family stuff going on and build, doing a building project as the house was being done. And if something was going wrong every single week, I got vocal ones <laughs> the house has been broken into and all the builders tools have been nicked. I'm like, great. Oh, I've got year seven, period three. What am I supposed geez. to do? Yeah, that kind of nonsense. And it was just absolute carnage. And meanwhile, trying to build a department from scratch, cause there were science teachers, but there was no science department to speak yeah. of. There was no routines. There was no rigor. There was no No habits, no resources, no assessments, no trackers, nothing, 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 but nothing. So the phrase phrase that my boss Chris uses is building the ship, uh, building the plane while it's flying uh, is very much what was going on. Because this, this, by the way, is the big, I'm digressing massively here. This, by the way, is the big difference between the public sector and the private sector that, you know, in the public sector, sorry, in the private sector, like you can expand and contract, right? And you can mm. you can put a break on certain projects and say, right, well, we're just not going to do that for a bit while we sort out this. Um, and, you know, like my work on Carousel, so Carousel Learning, the snazziest quizzing platform available nice. um, is, and, and like, you know, there's stuff that we really want to do, but we just don't have the capacity to do. So we have to prioritise and we put things in order and we say, right, this will come in three months' time. This will come in four months' time. And you have a roadmap, but you can't do that in a school. You can't just be like, you know what, guys, actually, we're just – I know that the entire trust are doing mocks in November. I just don't think we're ready for them. So we're just not going to, like, you can't do stuff like that. You can't push off GCSEs. You can't just stop teaching for two weeks while you get your resources in order. So it was absolute frantic chaos. And right when I thought things were going okay, um, January, then February, then COVID. Um, and so it's been a very difficult couple of years I imagine there's not a head of department in the land who's been having a particularly easy time this term has been particularly difficult Um, I don't know if that's because it's on an absolute level it is categorically worse than the first term of last year was but it really feels like it yeah Um, at some point along that I accidentally became the co-owner of Carousel Learning as Mm -hmm. mentioned um and i now actually do four days a week in school and one day a week from home working on carousel that's that's that's, that's good. a biography that will
0: that good do pace. that was good pace that was good pace um i'm just going to backtrack i just want to ask you one thing adam Um yeah because your journeys is it's fairly similar to mine in, in the sense that it sounds like we started teaching in a similar way then had a bit of a i always call it a kind of a mid-career crisis but for you it came really early on in, in your career well one thing I found when I started reading these articles, like the Kirshner article and a lot of Sweller's work, I, I went out my way to try and find the as much evidence for the opposite view. So as much evidence for discovery, for inquiry, and so on. But but I, but I struggled. And for, for you as a scientist, was that a similar thing as well? When when you saw this this evidence, did you purposely go out your way to try and find the counter argument and, and find as compelling evidence, or or because I often feel I was guilty of. Once I'd made up my mind that what I was doing was wrong, I was like, okay, right, let's just stick to that. Cause that's quite a coherent narrative now. Well, what what was it like for you? Um, I think I think for for me, it wasn't
1: like there was one moment that radically changed my teaching. You know, it built up over time. And for a lot of a lot of your listeners now won't be aware of a lot of the stuff that we read back then what i call what i call edu twitter 1.0 or like the edu bloggers 1.0 you know these heavy hitters you know other you know greg is still tweet is still um blogging twice twice a day at the moment but like david doesn't blog so much anymore you never get a blog out of tom bennett Mm -hmm. um people that were really influential on me back then joe facer dawn cox um you know a lot of a lot of them don't blog anymore yeah. So, but those were the kind of big polemic. Yeah, Daisy, Daisy Christodoulou. Yeah. yeah. So, seven myths about education. It's it's a it's an unabashed and unashamed polemic. Yeah. No, it, for sure. Um. But but I, I don't even know how many people have read that. You know, I know people that were teaching then might have read it, mm. but most people coming up now aren't going to be reading it. Um. But I feel really quite strongly that a lot of those articles did take the opposing side quite seriously. Um, but for me, it was—it's just a case of to date, no one's been able to show me any evidence that meets similar criteria of basic controls, basic mm. randomization. You know, we have this in science the whole time with stuff like practicals, where you know someone said, you know, I, I say, well, can someone just show me some evidence that practicals enhance any aspect of learning? And I get sent a paper, uh, and I'm like, OK, well, there's no control here. Yeah, it's just one class where the guy's done a practical and then just ask kids questions at the end. There's no pretest, right. there's no post-test, nothing. And then someone sends me another one. They say, Oh, well, here we've got a post-test and there's a control. And I say, Okay, well what is a control? It's a video. The kids watch a video for an hour. And I'm like, Well, that's not that and, and it says in in the abstract, it says it was compared to it, the the it was compared to a controlled condition of a more traditional teaching style. And I'm like, I mean <laughs> I mean, stretching stretching the word a bit, isn't it? So as soon as someone shows me, and and, and I've, I've put out a call to this, I invite researchers. I say, come to my class, yeah. We'll do a pretest, we'll do a post-test. we'll do a control, we'll do it properly. You're you're welcome. Be my guest. Have I been taken up on it? Tumbleweed, nothing but tumbleweed. So I'm just waiting, and as soon as people start sending me that evidence, I'll read it. You know, but but the the overwhelming majority of people who send me evidence, they're like, gotcha, you're clearly wrong about this. I look at it and I'm like, this is dross. It's just not it's just not worth it. People suggesting theoretical models with no empirical basis, people not controlling things properly, no pretest, no pro, no post test, um, no sense of randomization, no objective, useful criteria by which I can say, yes, this is really, really strong evidence. So until that happens, um, I'm going to keep doing what I do.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, let's talk about your favorite failure now, Adam, if that's all right. So I'm looking for a moment in your career that didn't go according to plan and what you learned from the experience.
1: Um, I, I mean, there's <laughs> been a lot of, there's <laughs> been a lot. Um, very early on uh, in the first term of my PGCE, um, I thought I was hot stuff. And Lynn Chapman, the great Lynn Chapman, who was my PGC and mentor at the University of Hertfordshire and has trained, you know, eighty percent of science teachers in Hertfordshire. She was one of these um, people who's she was about three foot tall and utterly terrifying you know the type like like that type of person who just like walks into room and everyone's like oh my. you don't even need to know them. You're like this person is scary and um she was describing when well, she has a dry sense she was so dry it's arid nice. and you know she was hilarious but utterly deadpan the whole time and um i was desperate 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 to impress her um, and her first observation with me was at the school that I was training at and my mentor there was a lady called Susie who was lovely, the head of science and was really supportive. And I'd done this it was in the middle of this zany sequence where half the kids were learning about ionic bonding, half the kids were learning about covalent bonding. And basically they were making PowerPoint presentations and they were going to teach each other about them. Um which is <laughs> so hilariously ridiculous now i look back on it um but at the time i thought it was so cool and um and like i got some feedback from some of the teachers at the school they were like yeah that's so interesting make sure you send us all the plans I was like, yeah yeah i'm gonna do this i'm gonna blow out the water and like like it didn't quite you know work the way I'd wanted it to in the lesson like things had taken a bit longer the presentations were a bit stilted and like I could tell the kids weren't really doing a good job of explaining it to each other and I was like okay you know fine it wasn't great and then I sat down at this feedback and um, that's what I said and you know Lynn had said to me you know how do you think it went um, and I said yeah I, was, I thought it was okay and Susan was like yeah, yeah I thought it was okay and, and Lynn was like it was terrible. <laughs> she was like, no learning took place.
0: And I was like,
1: oh, I what? And like my world kind of fell apart. Cause I was so desperate to impress her. Yeah, yeah. And Susie kept like everything that like Lynn had a list. Yeah. She was going through the list, like destroying me. And um, every time Susie kept being, trying to be like, Oh, but you know, he did do this. And I thought that was quite good. And it was like, no, <laughs> just like shut it right. That <laughs> No. And like, I was absolutely devastated. Um, and for some people, for some people, if Lynn had done that to them, it would have been career-ending. Mm. Yeah, they just wouldn't have turned mm. up the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, it was absolutely 100% what I needed to hear because I was Icarus. I was trying to like be all singing, all dancing, always bang, and I just didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, and don't, don't get me wrong; it's not like that caused me to change the paradigm. It just mm. caused me to slow down. Yeah, and to try and you know, figure out a better way of doing that nonsense. So I was still doing the nonsense, but doing the nonsense better. Um, and I'm sure that she wouldn't have done that to somebody else. And, and a different approach wouldn't have worked for me. Like a softly, softly approach wouldn't. I was so arrogant, you know, so full of myself. The softly, softly approach with some people, they just, you're always worried that people will hear what they want to hear. And when you take mm-hmm. a softly, softly approach with someone who's got a huge ego, they just don't hear you. They just yes. don't hit you it's not until you break down that wall um, and it's you, you need you need first to be someone that the person respects um and then it's not till you really break down that wall uh, and you deconstruct exactly uh, methodically um what's going on you show the person that, that they're building their, their their own personal sense of mythos on pillars of sand it's not until you do that that you really can then start to build them back up again mm. And that works for some types of people. It doesn't work for other types. I'm not saying that I'm a better type of person because that's the thing that would work for me. It's just different approaches work for different people. And Lynn got it absolutely right for me.
0: Got it. Good one. I like that one, Adam. Right. Let's turn our attention to your book then. Now, again, I always I always find myself saying this. I, I genuinely absolutely loved your book. And it would have been a real awkward conversation, this, if I thought it was crap, because I don't quite know what I would have done. But I really, really enjoyed it. It's called, correct me if I'm wrong here, Teaching Secondary Science Colon A Complete Guide. I like that. Yeah, the colon um, is
1: the punctuation mark. It doesn't have the word colon in it
0: yes <laughs>
1: yeah it's just because like it's not people a might think thing. that i'm teaching about colons got it got it okay you, you've got to uh, be careful it's biologists they're very literal <laughs> they don't understand these things
0: um i was did, did you have any other titles up your sleeves it's very very kind of literal and quite a grand title what, what was some of the rejections there
1: um, I'm very bad at writing titles for things. Um, it's all I say. It's, it's my Achilles heel. It's the most first world Achilles heel. <laughs> right. yeah. um, I, I, ca- I, to be honest, I can't. I can't remember. There was it was probably variations. Probably things like how to teach secondary science, nice. yeah, or yeah, even yeah. dare I say, how I wish I'd taught secondary nice. science. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I could have got some royalties for that. That's good. No, I like it. I like it. What, what's it about, Adam? Give us a brief summary. Um,
1: it's you? about teaching secondary science. It's a complete idea. <laughs>
0: I had A funny feeling, you won't say that. All right then. Why, why write the book, and, and why is now the time to write it in twenty twenty one?
1: I oh, those are two good questions. Why write the book? I had a lot that I wanted to um, to say, um, and I wanted to give it the time. You know, it's not, like there's, there, there, there was a there was a big discussion online a little while back about some books that really could have just been left as blogs. Um, and there are, you know, we can be honest, there are some books that you read and you're like, eh, this is a long blog, right. Or this is just a collection of blogs. Um, there is a reach that you can get with a book that you can't get with a blog. You know, people don't buy blogs for their head of department or whatever. Yes. Um, people don't, ref- you know, most people don't have a copy of a blog printed in their office that they can refer to when they get stuck. Um, so there's things that you can do with the book. There's a, there's a gravitas, there's an importance, you know, you try and avoid spelling mistakes and stuff where, where in blogs, you know, you write at three in the morning where, you, you know, the, the, the blog that I wrote that has the most hits ever was, I wrote at 1115 on a Thursday night, having already worked 55 hours that week. <laughs> right, yeah? okay. And, um, that's the one that I wrote in the depths of lockdown. Um, and by the way, I, I'd be, I'd be willing to like take up boxing gloves on this one with Tom Sherrington. Cause I reckon it is the most read education blog ever. Wow. Um, What's because, the title
0: about him Which one is it? Uh,
1: that's the, uh, I want to go back to school.
0: Yes. That's um, yes, nice. Yeah. yeah
1: and it, it literally got hundreds of thousands of views. Um, which is not something that my blogs normally get look it it, it resonated um mm. and people picked it up and it got some retweets off some big hitters you know yeah. James O'Brien retweeted it I was nice. like this is my yeah, my made my it. life made is it. made <laughs> but but you know that, that but but again like it was it, it was an emotional piece it was a polemic um I wanted and and a lot of my blogs are along those lines as well I wanted the book to be cool and dispassionate mm. um I wanted it to be more objective than the writing that I was used to. Um, and, and I hope that comes through, uh, you know, but there's, there's like a FAQ section at the back where Ooh, I get a bit more spicy, that's nice. um, but but the the majority of it, I'm just trying to like set out what I think rather than spend hours trying to tell, say what everything, say that everyone else is thinking is silly, um, which yes. is what a lot of my, my blogging was about. Um, very much part of that kind of polemic um, argumentation type thing um so I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to say and I wanted to say it in a book um and I was getting a lot of and I knew that I would only be able to really I write I think best through my writing um I know a lot of people are like that as well um and I knew that I'd only really be able to systematize it and 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 crystallize it and make it clear enough to be communicated if I actually sat down and wrote a Mm. book otherwise it would just always be this like hodgepodge of things that I do um, rather than me trying to explicitly describe the things that I can do in a way that is intelligible to someone who can't see me doing them. Um, so, there were, you know, those were motivations for it as well. And I think the really big one was that, you know, I came of teaching age when I was reading all these blogs about cognitive load theory. And I had, and I was like, oh, yeah, you've got to implement cognitive load theory in the classroom. Okay, well, what does that actually mean? I've got to do retrieval practice. It took me three years to figure out how I wanted to do retrieval practice and a route that works. Right. And it took me a further two years to build a company, which means that I can actually now really do it the way that I want to do it. And I'm like, what, what a waste of time. What a colossal waste of time. It's a waste of everybody's time. Um, so why not just like put that stuff in a book? And that means that other people can then can then go with it. And, and it's about taking those like grand ideas, cognitive load theory, retrieval practice, um, and showing what, you know, explanations, modeling, independent practice, drill, interleaving, spacing, all of this stuff that everybody talks about, nobody has any idea how to do. Because um, nobody's been trained in this stuff because mm-hmm. it doesn't exist in teacher training. It might do now, but it certainly didn't, you know, a couple of years ago, even in teacher training. Um so there was you know, a, a really good one the one that I really like is Rosenshine yeah so Rosenshine says um the the best teachers break material down into small chunks how small
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah where do I stop all right Rosenshine says the best teachers um start every lesson with a review of prior learning how no, how how do they do that? Yeah. Do they do that by asking questions? Do the students where do the students write? Do the students write answers or they say answers? Are the answers on a mini whiteboard? Does the teacher did, are they doing it by questions or just by reminding them? How much content? How do they decide which content? And I'm like, Rosenshine is brilliant. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah, but it it is not a concrete guide to class and practice. It's not you can't take it and be like, oh, now I know how to do this stuff um, because it just doesn't like that's just it's it's not what it's trying to do. Mm. So there was a need. that. um, And I guess the book kind of emerged out of that.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Um, Oh God, there's so much stuff I want to ask you here, Adam. I'll tell you what, just just on a practical level, how how did you find the time to write it? I'm I'm genuinely (laughs) fascinated about this because I was thinking, oh, maybe it was a lockdown book because you had tons of time on your hands during lockdown. But then I remember speaking to you in lockdown and that was quite the opposite. So um, yeah, how on earth did you write the thing?
1: Systematic neglect of... (laughs) Health, family, yeah, yeah. friends, <laughs> hygiene, everything. <laughs> um, look, I the, the the there's a couple of honest truths. Yeah, the first honest truth is that is that I work fast. Mm. Um, you know, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah, I remember, yeah, right? so it, it makes me sound like a dick, but I work fast. You know, I I work fast, and I'm aware of the fact that I work faster than a lot of other people. I can like. I, I can accept that, and I can say it, and I hope that people don't think I'm a dick for yeah, saying yeah, it. Yeah, Fine. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the, the more important point is that um, <laughs> do you know uh, you know David Belina, the the researcher? Yes. Yeah. So I think I think it's actually pronounced Bech, yeah, I, don't like, or I, don't know. I say be- it, be- I'll,
0: I'll say it like you, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs>
1: this, this guy's writing. He's he's writing research in the 80s and 90s on expert teaching. Um, and he's basically observing. This is for the benefit of anyone who's not familiar with his work, which is brilliant. It's so interesting. He's observing these expert teachers and looking at the stuff that they do uh, and, and comparing it to novice teachers. Mm. And like some of it is some of it is obvious. So, for example, expert teachers are more likely to come up with questions on the spot, whereas novice teachers need to sit down and plan them. Expert teachers think about teaching over the long term. They think about where they need to be in a month or two months, whereas novice teachers are thinking about the the lesson that's in front of them when expert teachers see disruption in the lesson they look for the cause of the disruption rather than the manifestation they look for the kid that's thrown the bit of paper or whatever rather than the kids who's outraged at the piece of paper that's been yes. thrown at them whereas novice teachers fixate on the first thing that they see um and and on almost all metrics expert teachers outperform novice teachers there there's do you know what the one thing that novice teachers do better than expert teachers no, go on. not lose their shit if they're put in a different classroom
0: is that right oh, yeah yeah I like so in, that.
1: in one of his studies he like he'd, he literally just he just like asks them he's like I, I can't remember if he asked them or if he actually put them into different classrooms and the expert teachers they like broke down i think there's <laughs> one bit where he's like one one teacher literally cried because they were in the wrong classroom because the idea is that expert teachers they've just like automatized so much of what yeah, they do and so much of that is down to the physical environment around them that was um, the, the the way they walk around the room the where where everything is placed they know exactly where to go to get their pens and their Puncher and the glue and the this and the that and the other (laughs) and if a kid finishes they know they've got a bank of questions here and blah 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 that it just like becomes overwhelming when you move to a different classroom um uh why am i talking about oh yes right one of the other things he um discusses is where they plan so he said that like novice teachers they like sit down and they plan yeah. And they'll block off an hour to plan, you know, the next day's lesson or whatever. Whereas expert teachers, they'll plan in the car on the way to work. Mm. They'll plan in the shower. They'll plan here. They'll plan there. I've been writing this book for five years right? Yeah? Okay. in, in the the spare minutes I have here or there while I'm driving to school, yes. while I'm showering, while I'm supposed to be paying attention at the dinner table, like the whole time. Yeah. So I wrote the book in six months, like physically, yeah, yeah. But it was, it took me four and a half years to get there Yes, <laughs> because that's how long I'd been thinking about it and trying to figure the stuff out. Um, and I'm very blessed that I have some absolutely astonishingly good colleagues at my school, people who are on operating on a different level when it comes to teaching and learning, when it comes to communication and when it comes to training others and, and cut through. And I've been blessed to work with some really brilliant trainees who have forced me to clarify and come up with language. Like there are words that I've completely made up in the book, but I think they're helpful. Um, I think there's a lot of words we have that are made up in education, like for example, metacognition. I don't think that word is helpful, Um, but I think some of the words that I've come up with are helpful. I don't think there's a better word or a simpler word or a clearer or more concise way to communicate the concept that I'm trying to get, get across. Um, but again, all of that is like the steady buildup of just years of, of, of thinking um, and an and, and, and obsession almost. Maybe. You'll have to
0: give us some of your made up words, Adam. Give, give us a couple of your best.
1: Um, I like polysemic. Um, so it's not it's not a really made up word because polysemic is an actual word. So monosemic and polyse- polysemic in normal language refer to words which have just like one mm. meaning. Or words that have like lots of different meanings so um you know i'm looking nicely at your uh, your kind of what's behind you so you've got a television yeah if you say to most people television they know what you mean yeah it's fairly monosemic whereas um behind you you've also got um uh, like books yeah even if you say to book person book well is a book what about an e-book mm. is an e-book a book what about when people talk about metaphor, when they like book something in um, like, but that is literally a book because it's, people would have written it in a book. So you, it's complicated. Yeah. Cause you yeah, have, yeah. most words have multiple kind of meanings and facets and that's you know, that's what makes study of language. It's what makes poetry so interesting, that kind of stuff. Um, so I moved that into the classroom when it comes to um, types of answers to types of question. So there are some questions for which there is only one answer. Yeah. Mm. The what is the mass number for carbon? Twelve. Mm, yep. Okay. Uh, what is the Avogadro number? Six point oh two times ten to twenty three. But it's not just numbers. What is the word equation for photosynthesis? Carbon dioxide plus water becomes, or chemically reacts to form, glucose plus oxygen. Yeah, there's no there's no negotiation about that. Whereas a polysemic one is um, where you can have multiple answers that are all correct. Um, so, for example, what is an atom? What is an atom? Well, it could, you know, you could call it a very tiny particle of matter. You could call it the fundamental building block of matter. You could call it a tiny particle made of protons, neutrons, electrons. Uh, You know, you you could call it the smallest part of an element that can Mm -hmm. be recognized as that element. Yeah. So all of those are correct. There's nothing wrong there. Right. But it's important as a teacher to be aware of those. So the way that you as a teacher respond to, you know, let's say I'm asking questions in class. And I say to a student, you know, I say to a student, what are the products of photosynthesis? And a kid says glucose and oxygen. I'm like, brilliant. If that's what you wrote, give it a tick. If you wrote something else, it's wrong. Yes. yes. Whereas if I say to a student, what's an atom? And they say the fundamental building block of matter Mm -hmm. i'm like if i go great that's right and then if you wrote that that's right and then move on well i've got half of my kids who've written something different that's also right yes but i haven't adequately responded to that so you as a teacher need to know what are your polysemic questions and what are your monosemic questions because it dictates the way you respond um and and even by the and so 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 you know if it was atom i'd say yep that's right other possible answers are things like x y z if you wrote those that's good um if you're not sure about yours and again and it depends on what phase of the lesson if it's a do now and I want it to be short sharp and punchy I say if you're not sure about yours put a star next to it later on in the lesson when I'm coming around just show me um, but if it's something that I want to spend a bit more time over that says prerequisite knowledge so it's stuff that they need to access today's learning uh, then I'll spend a bit more time on it and I'll make sure I've fleshed out all of those different responses um, because you know students aren't as good at judging this stuff as a teacher is so we'd need to do that we might need to do that as a class but like if I haven't thought that that, that word now is now useful to me because when I observe one of my colleagues going over a do now um, and I just say to them, you know, you chose to go over this question quite quickly, but it's polysemic. And they're like, oh, you're right. Mm-hmm. They now know that what they should have done is spent a bit more time over it um, or sampled a few more responses or done a show call, something along those lines. So that word is is helpful to me. You know, that, that entire explanation that I gave to you, I've delivered now. Yes. And it means now that next time when I speak to them, I can just say hello polysemic yes. uh, and they know exactly what I mean uh, and we're done we can just move on yeah it's it's words are important yeah and they, they they stand for ideas and there can be a whole world of ideas behind one simple word um the, the 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 key is trying to find the words that represent those worlds most accurately most concisely and most clearly uh and figuring out when to deploy those words
0: that's good can you squeeze in one more one that you've made up Adam that was good that one give, give us another if you can um the the ones that
1: I really like are the directions of travel, the dots. Um, so again, none of those words are made up. Direction of travel isn't made up, <laughs> but the the principle of dots um, most certainly is, uh, and it's about the way that I frame an explanation. Uh, so. Again, this is a this is a classic example. So, in everybody's read, um, everybody's read. Why don't teachers? Why don't students like school? By Dan Willingham, mm-hmm. uh, and in it, he's got a chapter about the about explanations and narrative and making sure that you know explanations have like a narrative form. And he gives a couple of examples, but there's not enough to go on there for me in a science yeah. classroom at all. He talks about the four C's: um, yeah. so conflict, character. Um, something else and something else that i can't remember um but again there's nothing there for me to go on as a science teacher it's taken me a long time to figure out what makes a good science explanation and and part of it is about this narrative structure this sense of order the the reason why i'm going from a to b to c to d and not from d to c to b to a or from b to c to a to d um and there are a number of different ways to structure that Explanation, and I call those ways directions of travel. So one simple way is concrete to abstract. So you always move from things which are concrete to an idea which is which is abstract. Within science, that might be if I want to teach students about changes of state, I'll start by talking about ice and liquid water and gases. That's very and steam. Sorry, that's very concrete. Whereas the universal principle of solids liquids and gases is highly abstract. Mm. There's not a person in this universe who has ever seen the universal idea of a solid. You've seen chocolate and, and wax and ice and stearic acid, which is the one that we often use in the lab. You've seen those things, but you've not seen the universal idea of a solid. You can't because it doesn't exist. Um, so you always go from the concrete thing to the abstract thing and that lends your explanation not only a sense of order um, but which is which is which is both pleasing and reassuring as a student to hear but it also actually uh, moves it in a way that is cognitively easier to understand Um, we spoke about hinterland before so a good if you're going to use hinterland you start with your hinterland and then you move to core you don't try and intertwine the two of them because the way that you do hinterland is different from the way that you do core you when you do hinterland you're being charismatic you're being energetic you're being a storyteller you know you're using emotion and things that are important to you and it's about feeling uh, it's about impression whereas when you get to core everything stops i'm using clean clear precise language i'm being economical i'm being methodical um, i'm not trying to like impose my own character and sense i'm not trying to get the students to you know what's you know what do you think of you know what 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 does that mean that avogadro was just completely ignored by the scientific community like it just like there is a time for that but it's before we get to okay now we need to look at this number right Mm -hmm. and why this number is important and it's almost two different styles of teaching so and you start with the hinterlands and you move to the core and again it lends your explanation a sense of um, a sense of like i know what i'm doing right students you can see that like i've got a plan i've mapped this out um and it's also like cognitively it it feels better um and again like, do i have any randomized control evidence no um, but i think it's plausible
0: well, that, that brings us nicely on to explanations, Adam. And you've, you've covered a lot of the ground there. But I wonder, I should say, there's a bit of background there. There was about seven or eight things I could have chosen to speak to you about. I'm going to make a point. I've got it on my little piece of paper here. I want to talk briefly about retrieval after we've spoke about explanations. But I just want to um, dive a bit deeper into explanations. And the reason I've chosen this one is because you, you write very well about it in the book. And also, when you made your little cameo on the podcast during the first lockdown, I think it was... We were speaking a bit about explanations there in the sense that you were, it was just before you would started doing some work with Oak and you'd started, Oak Academy, I should say, and you'd started recording your lessons and thinking really carefully about how to communicate things in a really concise way when you're in the restricted medium of video and so on. So I'm going to start with what's probably a terrible, terrible question and feel free to either ignore it or say that you've already covered it. But what makes a good explanation, Adam? Um...
1: I'm, I'm going to be a bit difficult here because what makes a good explanation is uh, any explanation is understood. Yeah, that's the the you've said good, right? If it, it can't be a good explanation if it's not understood, right? Figuring out what makes it more likely for an explanation to be understood is, I think, the real question here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and and it's. <laughs> It has taken me a very long time. You know, I um, I, I did some training at school um, on explanations and modeling. We we have a brilliant CPD program at school. We did seven or eight sessions. Um, and in the first one, I did Hinterland, right? And I took a stack of textbooks with me to school and I held them up. And I said, this is learning to teach in the secondary school. Big, fat textbook, standard issue, PGC. There is not a single page. It's got 1,500 pages. There's not a single page, not a single chapter, not a single sentence about explanations. And I dropped it on the floor. And then I took the next one. This is called Learning to Teach Secondary Science by Liversidge and whoever. Not a single word. We've got misconceptions. We've got practicals. We've got science capital. We've got all of that stuff. Not a word about explanations. I then held up Teach Like a Champion. Yeah, because it's not, for, you know, I'm not in the business of just saying, yeah, the, just just crapping on other people's houses. I think Teach Like a Champion is a brilliant book. I think everybody should read it. There's not a word mm. on explanations. That's fine. It's not what he's trying to do. That's 2.0. I don't know if 3.0. I've not, I've, I've not read it yet. You know, and, and I did the same for, you know, Rosenshine. Great. It says break the explanation yeah. into small steps. Is that always true? Like, again, how small? By which principles, what, any sense of ordering at all. Mm. So, so, so nothing, as we say in Yiddish, Gornisht, it's a good word. It means nothing. Yeah. Gornisht, just oh, nothing, 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 but nothing. I spent, I've, again, I've spent years trying to figure out what are the characteristics of a good explanation. And that's been a meld of work from the cognitive sciences, especially around the multimedia effects, mm. um, redundancy, split attention, um or dare i say dual coding theory um that often misunderstood but it's got such a jazzy name it's so sexy people can't help but call everything dual coding theory um i essentially i just try to avoid using the phrase now um but yeah it took me a long time to figure that out um oak really helped because i was trying to figure out how to explain stuff when i wasn't in the room yeah um because i was trying to do it remotely oak was insane um we, you know, I did 44 lessons in nine weeks Wow! Um, while my wife, you know, I did it in nine weeks instead of 10 or 11, because I went into paternity leave on the ninth. Yes. Um, so I had to accelerate um, all the time while looking after my daughter four days a week and trying to run a department. It was the most, so that's where that, that blog that I spoke about was written. It was the bleakest time of my life because yes, yes. Um, I was wor- working, I dread to think how many hours a week it was, it was not good and it was not healthy. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like long-term I've suffered for it for sure. I didn't realize at the time, um, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I didn't, I had no idea it was happening. I just stood on the scales and realized I'd lost almost 10% of my body weight without nice. any change in diet or exercise regime. Um, just like the sheer stress yeah, of the yeah. whole thing. Um, and like when I came back to school this year and I thought I was ready, I, I hadn't, didn't even realize how burnt out I was. Um, and like, I really like the first week I I, like felt like I'd been hit by a train Mm. and not like, like I'm used to working hard. I'm used to working energetically and being busy, but like the sheer sense of exhaustion. Um, and I think all of that was just like piled up and piled up and I just had no idea it was happening and it wasn't healthy. Um, there was a question buried in there somewhere explanation. Oh yeah. So Oak helped, Oak helped with the explanations and it really made me think about how to be methodical and how to be clear. Um, and then we did a lot of work ourselves in our department, um, you know, doing stuff like that. Cause we did, we did asynchronous teaching. There's a made up word in teaching <laughs> that is, I'm not convinced it's particularly helpful. We did video lessons, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and again, like the focus for us was on getting the explanation, right. Both because we felt that, um, the explanations are super important and like, if we're not there, we can't check for understanding because mm. we're not in the room with them. We have mm. to make sure the explanation is brilliant. Um, but also because we wanted to make sure that the time we were spending was actually an investment and it's only an investment if it's going to pay back later and, and people who are working on different strategies for hosting a team's lesson, yeah, that's time. You're never going to get back. Yeah. Whereas the videos that we made are now yeah. all saved. My, my teach Firsters are about to teach energy. Our next unit in year seven is energy. When we finish with sales. Energy is tremendously difficult to teach, but they're very blessed because they have every single lesson from our booklet on energy as a video. So, like, what better planning is there? Um, So we had to think really hard about explanations. But but most importantly, I had to give people feedback about their explanations. Mm. And when you're giving people feedback, it is on you. To make sure you explain yourself properly. And if you're funnying around, be like, oh God. you know, when I do sessions about explanations, I deliver a series of different explanations, yeah. And the fir- and I always ask for feedback on each one. People do mini whiteboards, yeah? And the first one it was always the same. People say it was really clear. Like you spoke slowly. And I'm like, I'm like, that's rubbish feedback. Yeah, because if it wasn't clear, you say it wasn't clear. What wasn't clear about it? Well, I don't, you know, it just wasn't like quite clear. Mm. And I'm like, yes, but what is it that wasn't clear? Um, people say, like, it just didn't feel like things were in the right order. And I'm like, well, what would the right order be? Oh, I don't really know. Do you have a guiding principle to tell you what the right order to sequence your explanation is? No. So I can't, I can't, keep, it, it's unethical to give someone feedback if it's not actually going to help them right? So I had to think very hard about what these principles were. Um, and and I think I've come up with with a decent, you know, I think there's about 100 pages in the book about it. Um, there's some stuff which is generalizable to all disciplines, um, the need to direct attention. Yeah, you've got to tell students what you want them to be attending to. Um, and that that includes minimizing distraction. You know, so in science, that might be, not having your entire diagram there at the start, but building up slowly mm. uh, because there's nothing for students to be looking at if they're looking at a blank canvas. Yes,
0: yeah? yes.
1: Or it might be, you know, if you use a diagram, you know, you've got a pre-made diagram that you want to use. So putting it up, let people have a look at it. Yeah, okay, guys, just have a quick look at it. You know, give them 30 seconds, whatever. Okay, there's a guy. Eyes back on me, please. Thank you. Thank you. Right. I want you to look at this bit and point. Mm. So I want everyone looking at this bit. So the need to direct attention uh, and they need to regulate the flow of information to make sure you're not giving students too much or too little at any given time. Or if you are giving them a lot, you're giving them something to help them comprehend that. Um, So where I differ with Rosenshine is that Rosenshine says you need to break into small pieces. I say, no, you don't need to break into small pieces. You just have to realize that if you're not breaking into small pieces, it's gonna be harder. You have to do something else to mitigate. And that might be providing them with a really strong support or it might be making sure that they're really ready with their prior knowledge before you start, whatever it is. Uh, It's about finding the sweet spot. Um, so, you know, those are principles that make a good ex- that, that are more likely to lead to a successful explanation. Um, and then also the directions of travel. So moving from concrete to abstract, I think, is effective. Uh, moving from uh, things which are familiar to students to things which are unfamiliar to students. So you always start with things that they know about and then go towards things which they don't know about, because you can use the things that they know about to help you get to the things they don't know about. Um, uh, something that I've not done in, in, in our talk now is about moving from the example to the definition. So too often we give students a definition of a thing and then we try and illustrate it. And you're like, well, if they, those are just words. Yeah. So if you're about to teach electrolysis and you define electrolysis and say, now I'm going to show you what it is. You say, right, electrolysis is the separation of compounds into its constituent elements using electricity. Kids are just like, Poof! it's just noise. It's just noise. Uh, and at best, it's a waste of their time yeah Uh, and at worst it just makes them think oh god this is going to be really hard i'm not going to get it and they Mm -hmm. don't listen Um, and this is a problem with the idea of like writing learning objectives and stuff at the beginning of a lesson like if the student's understand what it means then your lesson is a waste of time if they don't understand what it means then writing it down now is a waste of time at best at best it's a waste of time Uh, so that's another one hinterland to core is another one Um, uh, simple to complex is another one Um, but that might the simple to complex can take place over many years so for example our students in secondary science students understanding of what an atom is starts off very simple and develops into quite radical complexity Mm -hmm. by the time they're done in key stage five um What are my other ones? Wood trees wood. I love wood trees wood. Wood trees wood is. You know the phrase uh, seeing the wood for the trees. Yes. It's about where you see all the detail. You, you see all the details, but you can't understand yeah. the bigger picture. And I think I get this a lot when I'm reading with my daughter. She's four and a half, bless her, and she's doing phonics at the moment. It's unbelievable, isn't it? By the way, how quickly they learn. Oh it's yeah. Absolutely astonishing. But like, what she'll do is, is she'll read the sentence, and it'll be like, you know, rat sat on cat. Yeah. And she'll go R- at, rat rat at sat on at cat and then move on to the next page i'm like well what what just happened and she's like oh what do you mean and i'm like no no so what you need to do is is find some way of showing the big picture and the small picture so what i like to do is big picture small picture big picture wood trees wood so you kind of show students like like in broad outline, what you're trying to get at. And then you drill into the details. And then you must, must, must make sure you go back to that big picture. So there's a sense of groundedness to your explanation that they understand like how it all fits together. Um, and sometimes what I'll do is I'll just literally run over everything from my explanation again, really quickly. And I say, look, and what we just saw is how it moves from da, 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 da. It might've mm-hmm. taken me 15 minutes to get there and 30 seconds to summarize, but it, that summary is really important um what other ones are there oh conflict Yeah. so we spoke about the four C's from willingham so conflict to resolution i quite like which is where if you frame your explanation as like some kind of mystery yeah so conflict can be uh, it doesn't have to be like between characters and the story it's like you know how do we get from this to the, like it so uh, i don't know let's say we're doing extraction of metals yeah so i want to extract iron from iron ore i'll show students a picture of iron and a picture of iron ore and be like how do I get from that, from this mm. red, dusty, dirty rock to this shiny metal that I can use for drain pipes mm. and I can use for screwdrivers and I can use for the table legs that your desk on, and I can use for cars and I can. How do I get from this to this? Yeah. And then you explain it and then you answer your question. So you do conflict resolution plus wood trees wood, um, And it's just uh, just feels really nice and right. Uh, i think that's all of them i can't remember i've got like eight or nine i don't
0: know no this this is this is great this adam um right i've got a couple of points and then a question for you so a couple of points first is that the definition thing really struck home for me there that's a big big problem in math and something that i've really really tried to change my practice on there that you start with the definition you end up having to try and define the words in the definition because the kids don't have a bloody clue what's going on mm. whereas starting with examples and particularly I like kind of carefully varied examples and non-examples you know Good. the classic thing change one thing as it broken it is it now no does it now no longer fit into the family of being a polygon or whatever so that really really uh, brought home uh, hit home to me and introducing that formal definition as kind of the final piece of the puzzle as opposed to the, the kind of starting thing uh, the second point I wanted to make just talking about videos and um, explanations so you may know I, I'm a big fan of doing silent teacher when I'm doing explanations uh, in the classroom particularly kind of procedural things in mathematics where i model a solution from start to finish in silence um, as part of some work i was doing with diagnostic questions in ed we tried to do that with videos absolute bloody disaster the kids hated it It it's terrible and so the the idea was let's try and replicate what i've seen work well in the classroom in video form so the kids watch an explanation roll out in silence the dropout rates were absolutely through the roof and my conclusion that i reached and it's something you've just alluded to there is that the role of the teacher, particularly in, in particularly when it comes to gesturing and pointing and directing attention, is so, so, so important. And you can replicate that a little bit by kind of having a highlighter or a little PowerPoint, like, pointer thing. But nothing beats a teacher turning their eyes and pointing to something on the board and then looking around at the kids to see if their eyes are in the same place and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you learnt a lot from your explanations when you're doing your oak stuff, I think the more videos I produce, the more I realize what works and doesn't work in certain media compared to compared to in the classroom. That was the second point. And then the, my question I wanted to ask you after all this, and so feel free to comment on any of this. Well,
1: just quickly on that second yeah, please point, do said, I, I I don't know if it's true, but I heard once that when you look at most animals, so humans, you know, our eyes, we've got like whites. Yes, we've yeah, got yeah, our yeah. irises and our pupils and there's whites as well. Most animals don't have that. Most animals, it's like a black eye. Wow. Um, and and the, the evolutionary psychologists, like, well, why, or biologists even, it's like, why do we have, or what's the advantage of having whites? Mm. Uh, and I definitely read once. I don't know, if, like I said, I don't know if it's true, but it's a great metaphor. Um, <laughs> that It helps people a lot of, when you're a baby and you're learning, yeah, so when we do studies on babies, we look at the things that they're interested, we look at the things they're looking at. Mm. So we know that if a baby's interested in food, they'll look at the food, right? So when you If you look at another person, it's much easier to see what they're looking at if they've got whites to their eyes.
0: Whereas if you get up
1: close and personal with a horse or whatever, (laughs) that definitely came out wrong. Uh, (laughs) If you approach a horse with caution um, and you try and look at what it's looking at, it's a lot harder to figure out what they're looking at. So it could be that there's like a learning mechanism where where like babies, they see what the parents are interested in and focused on and worried about. And it's like when you're walking past a certain area, like, oh, God, there could be a dangerous animal or whatever in there. So you fix your eyes on it. And then the young person learns that this thing is important. This is something I need to be alert to. So, again, whether whether or not that's true, I don't know. Um, I definitely read it somewhere um but the idea is that that, that 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 direction of attention attend to this yeah. look at yeah. this yeah. this yeah. is important how, how is a child supposed to know what's important and what's not and you could just say well all of it and if it's not important yeah. then they shouldn't yeah. be you know you shouldn't be doing it i mean sure but you've you've got to make that clear to them um and i think yeah. So i think i think that stuff that you said about the sign and explanation you know you've got to realize how much like personal magnetism you have as a teacher mm-hmm. in the room that makes the yes. silent teacher work. And I have no doubt. Yeah. I don't want to be mean about anyone, but I'm sure you've seen it done really badly. And a lot of time, the times it will be done badly is because it's being done by someone who's not managing to bring themselves yeah. into yeah. the room. Yeah, uh, they're not yeah. managing to, to, have that presence and and presence is presence is a bad word or it used to be a bad word because you'd say to trainee teachers you know you need to work on your presence and they'd be like well, well how I said, yeah, i guess it's fine yeah. that now i say it to people because i have specific strategies that people can use to work on their presence yeah so Lamov moves like square up stand still um project your voice speak from your diaphragm mm-hmm. um be um when you're talking make sure that you're talking to the further student or the closest student step away from the speaker pastors perch all of that stuff helps build a person's presence in the room so i don't have a problem recommending it to a person as feedback but when a person isn't doing that and they're not injecting themselves then something like a silent explanation just won't work yeah it just absolutely. won't and and that 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 means it's that means it's a hard thing to do well um which you know doesn't mean it's not worth it it just means it's hard to do well and when you remove some of the conditions by which it makes it easier to work i.e., you being there then it makes it even harder
0: absolutely absolutely and my question i was going to ask you adam is one of the things I, I was thinking when I was reading your book was this could very, apart from the specific context, this could wear, very well be an excellent book for maths teachers to, it could very well be called, you know, Teaching Maths, A, a Complete Guide, because I, I, I didn't find a single principle that I couldn't transfer across. So I wonder when you're writing this book, uh, did you have that in mind? Were you, was, were you kind of thinking, I, I really hope this breaks out of the, of the kind of science bubble, or, or is this primarily a book just for science teachers?
1: When I, when I said to you, I've been writing this book for five years, that's because I've been thinking about teaching science for five years. I've seen hundreds of lessons. I've delivered thousands of lessons. Have I delivered thousands of lessons? Yeah. family estimate on that one. Yeah. I don't know, a lot. Delivered a lot of lessons. Um, and those are the things that I think about. That's my primary concern. And I think the bad old days of 2000s 2000 to two thousand and ten you know, broaching into 2015, pedagogy, teaching and learning, um, where anybody could observe anybody else and give feedback and just a complete, completely ignoring the disciplinary substance of the subject. I think you can go, I think to be fair, I think you can go too far with that. And I think I've gone too far with that myself at times and said, if you're not a science specialist, I don't want you observing my lesson. Mm, I don't want you giving me feedback. I think that's going too far because, you know, take cold call as an example. Yeah. If I'm not using cold call in my class for questions that students should know the answer to. So let's say, you know, uh, I've got a question like, you know, what is the word equation for photosynthesis? And I don't do cold call. And someone says to me afterwards, someone, a maths teacher, an English teacher said, look, Adam, you know, that question, were they expected to know the answer? I said, yes, we did it last lesson. So why didn't you use cold call? That is a very good, you know, that's totally reasonable uh, as feedback. But I felt quite uncomfortable delivering it because it's just not something that I'm experienced at doing. I'm glad that people found it helpful. I sent it to a couple of primary specialists to ask them what they thought. A couple of them said they loved it. They thought it was great. One of them said he wasn't convinced it would be useful for a primary teacher. I'm okay with that. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. I appreciate the honesty. Um, I sent it to a couple of math teachers. Like, so Michael Persian, you know, um, who we both know, I sent it to him. He really enjoyed it. Um, I sent it to another math teacher who said it looked great, but they didn't understand a lot of it mm. and or or they felt they couldn't comment on it. Actually, right. it's, yeah, that, that's better. They didn't say they didn't understand it. They said they felt they couldn't comment. Right. Uh, and I think that's entirely reasonable. Um, and I'm not trying to mark it to anyone. Other than if John Camp was sitting here, they'd be like, No, no, it's it's brilliant (laughs) for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't have called it teaching we should just call it teaching, a complete guide. Um, but for me that's what, you know, it's about teaching secondary science. I'm glad that people have found use for it outside of the subject, but that's not my aim. Got
0: it. Got it. Well, whilst we're talking Michael Pershing, um, let's let's get to one of his questions about explanations that he sent in. And Michael asks, what role do explanations play in procedural learning? And does that make mathematical explanations different than scientific ones? There's a nice light and easy question for you, Adam.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this one a lot. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I think the... I don't, I don't even know where to start. Okay. There's a lot of levels to approach. Yeah. Um, One thing is what you spoke about already, you know, know, the non-examples or the anticipation of error. You can do a non-example too early, Hmm. which is a classic downfall of using them. You want to make sure you've done one nice clean example first and then use your non-example you might not even want to signal it's a non-example so what we have so our maths department our maths maths department are rambunctious and they have a culture where they make deliberate errors Mm. uh, and students literally yell out mistake
0: right nice Uh, and
1: if and if they don't notice the mistake the teacher gets well annoyed Um, (laughs) it can be incredibly annoying to me when students yell at me that i've made a mistake like this isn't maths shut up i don't say shut up but you get the point um but, but yeah, they do that deliberately, but you can do that too early. If you do that before the concept has started yeah, to become yeah. consolidated, it's, it's the wrong time um, and anticipation of common error as well. It is I, I, for me is part of the same bracket mm. as um, non-example. You know, a lot of you will get this step wrong because you'll say, oh, well, da, 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 but you've got to realize that yeah. I think that's, you know, I think non-examples are great. I'm not sure that's an exciting answer to Michael's question. Um, there's the wide range, wide ranging use of examples. Um, So just using loads of examples with your variations, like you said, Um, but not just um, not just changing values or changing problem solving, but changing representations. So uh, Mm -hmm. I'm very blessed this year. I teach. uh, I teach top set year nine. Yeah, it's a brilliant class. It's the best class I've taught in years because I'm classic martyr head of department. um, So I've not given myself any really easy classes for a while. Um, and, and actually, I felt so bad about giving them to me, to myself. I put 37 of them in there. Wow. Uh, and there are now 40 of them. Um, it's been a great year. <laughs> so there's now 40 year nines crowded into my lab four times a week. Um, but we were doing, I, I give them some really difficult stuff to do. And because they are taught by my colleague, Sammy, who did, mm. I don't know if you heard Ollie's podcast.
0: Yeah, best podcast I've I've ever heard, I would go so far as to say. I thought it was absolutely outstanding.
1: Yeah. Other than this current one. But, um... Well,
0: yeah, it's the time of record. <laughs> It, right.
1: <laughs> um but yeah sammy's sammy's just a brilliant brilliant teacher yeah. um, and he teaches them maths and he's taught them maths since year seven so their maths is really really good mm. and um i gave them a very thorny problem we were doing isotope calculations which is basically a weighted average okay. so 75 percent of atoms of chlorine atoms in the universe have a mass of 37 25 sorry uh, wrong, wrong way around. 75 percent of chlorine atoms in the universe have a mass of 35, 25% have a mass of, of 37, what's the average mass? Nice. So it's a weighted mass calculation, you have to do um, you know, either 75 times 35 plus um, 25 mm. times 37 divided by 100, mm-hmm. or you do it as a decimal, you do 0.75 times 35 plus plus. times and um, those they were fine with and we solved them and I explained the meaning behind I could have just given them the equation and said right just plug numbers in it works because that's what I do with many classes I didn't do it with them Um, but I wanted to explain it so I started with just four atoms then I made it to 100 atoms then we spoke about what the word percent really means um, and that was great and then right at the end I gave them this devilish problem where normally you have what I just gave you is the abundance and the mass. So the abundance is seventy-five percent and the mass is thirty-five, yep. or the abundance is twenty-five percent and the mass is thirty-seven. Yep. But I gave them the average mass. Yeah. But I did, and so I gave them the average mass yep. and the individual masses, and I asked them to work out the abundances. Ah, nice.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's
1: essentially a function where you've got two unknowns. Yeah. And yeah. the key step there is figuring out that the two unknowns sum to a hundred. Yeah. Which yeah. a lot of them were just like they just couldn't get there, but but even once we did that, they got really unstuck at a certain point because it, it the whole thing the weighted average is in brackets, so you have the first bit in brackets plus the second bit in brackets. Yeah. You know, open brackets seventy five times thirty seven, so times thirty five. Close brackets plus open yeah. brackets twenty five times thirty five. Um, and the way I figured it is that I had one section in the brackets which was say you know twenty five times x, and then outside and then close brackets and then plus. Um, I know, sorry. And then actually I had, I had times outside the brackets 15 or whatever it was, and they could not understand how to do that. Mm. And for me, I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's just the stuff in this brackets times 15, you just open the brackets and they just couldn't get it. And then I was like, right. And I, I took that and I turned it into 15 open brackets and then put the numbers inside the brackets, and they're like, Oh, okay. We know how to do that. And I was like, like, the problem, the problem here is that they, not that they can't do the math, it's that they've not been shown enough representations." Yes. yes. Yeah. So they didn't realize that 15 open brackets, whatever, plus whatever is the same as whatever, plus whatever, close brackets times 15. Yeah. They just couldn't get that step. Um, So the idea of multiple representations is is so important as well um, when it comes to procedural stuff, because you don't know exactly how the question is going to be asked and things which are obvious and intuitive to you um aren't necessarily intuitive to the students um concrete to abstract as a direction of travel definitely works mm-hmm. as well in maths it doesn't always work because maths is by definition abstract uh, and not all abstract maths is a representation of something that happens in concrete reality yeah. uh, and yeah, that's yeah. fine that's absolutely fine that means don't bother don't shoehorn yeah, yeah. don't try and find something concrete because you want to make quadratic uh, you know simplifying quadratics into something that makes sense because like why bother yeah um but there are way you know there are plenty of things that do have concrete representations you know um uh, when we talk about stuff like the bar model or manipulatives yeah those are concrete representations where you do percents you're talking about you know people having a certain number of things uh probabilities is always a classic and again most teachers will be doing stuff like this anyway or um when you're trying to um when you're trying to move um like an x to either side of an uh, of an equals or whatever if you have like a balance or a scales yeah and you show students look i've got this many x's here and i've got two y's here what must mm. they be equal-? you know that kind of stuff how do how am i going to make them balance that that's pretty concrete um um but the the main thing on the procedural stuff for me is um I was watching a so as part of this modelling thing that we were doing across the school. So my boss Chris, who's the principal, he teaches. He's got a year seven class, um, and he's you know he, he doesn't teach a full timetable, but he's still teaching because it's important mm-hmm. to him. Um, and he sent a video of they use this technique called gelosia. Do you know gelosia? No. I, 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 I it means something. I don't even I can't remember what it stands for. Basically, it's a, it's a long multiplication method where you have like a box, a grid. And you put the two numbers at the top of the grids. So if you're doing, say, like twelve times fourteen, you do a simple two by two grid. You put one two at the top, and you put one four underneath. Yep. You times the two by the one, you times the one by the, and you multiply the numbers into the squares, and then you draw like diagonal lines. Oh yes, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah and by
1: magic, the answer comes out.
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And um, well, what all... are you calling that? Jalousia?
1: Yeah, I. I it, basically, our maths department are weird, right? And they do these <laughs> things called chants. Um, no, and, right. okay. yeah. and they'll they'll do gelosia because they'll have a chant associated with gelosia right. um, okay. so they have all these crazy chants that uh, uh, the way that students remember how to solve a problem Got it. Um, so for example I, I use some of them in my teaching because they're useful to me as well so I use successful elimination so I yell at the students successful elimination and they go inverse operation and nice. that's how okay. we rearrange an equation um, or things like of in math means. And they yell back times nice. Yeah. So anytime you see, if it says half of whatever, they know that that just means times, they just substitute okay. times in for the, of, um, right angle, triangle, Pythagoras or trick, and then it's like a whole decision tree where, cause anytime you see a right angle triangle, it's always going to be either Pythagoras or trick, right? So then they have a look, they see what, what values they've got, and They follow the whole chart. It's like a whole decision tree where they figure out what they've got and what they need to do next. Um, so they've got all these weird stuff like that. And gelosia is one example, but anyway, so he's doing an example using gelosia of a decimal. Yeah. And he's picked, you know, 3.2 times 14 or whatever. And it shows the students how it works and you move the decimal point down the line and you know, it, it works and it gives you the answer. And um and, and it was in terms of like clarity, flawless mm-hmm. in terms of how the damn thing worked yeah. or why it worked zilch yeah yeah so if i'm a student watching that, eh, i can pick up the procedure and i can algorithmically punch the numbers in and get it right but i have no idea of why it works and i think that is where a lot of math teachers come unstuck that students are watching and they're saying right i need to do this and i need to do that then i need to do that and even when they're saying right and I, I know i need to do this because of that it's not because because yeah it's because that's how you get rid of it. That's how you cancel both sides. That's how you multiply this by that or whatever. Um, So I think it is important for math teachers to consider like what I call the why. Yeah, like why does this work? Some of that is answered through hinterland. So, um, and I saw a really cool explanation of, um, this is my boss who's the teaching and learning leaders, my line manager, he's got a really nice explanation of, of, um, uh, 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 yeah, Pythagoras. uh, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. I got, yeah, I got that right. Yeah. And, um, he does, he's got this whole story about Pythagoras being the most. Um, influential, per, the most well-known person of history. Yeah. Because he was so long ago and everyone knows Pythagoras theorem. Mm. And he starts with the whole hinterland and he's like, what about the queen? Do we think the queen is the most known person in history? No, because you know. People did before nineteen thirty or whatever didn't know who the queen was, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So he's got this whole like story which is really nice and cute. And then he talks about Pythagoras walking on a beach and using pebbles to make triangles. And he noticed that if you use um, three uh, pebbles on one side of a triangle and four pebbles on another side of a triangle, you can fit exactly five going down the other side. And then he does another couple of Pythagorean triplets. Um, and like that's a really nice way to explain it. And, it and the kids are like oh yeah like like that's cool and and even if you you know you could dig a bit deeper and say well hang on <laughs> it still doesn't really make mm. sense but you know for, for students that's enough yeah it's enough to hang off um, but when I saw this explanation I was like well it, it doesn't work so one way is hint-land. um, one way is mathematical proof just proving that something works mathematically and with some students that'll be enough and like with your sign in explanation there'll be a point of because like, oh yeah so when when you like present it to me you say you know just have a think about that for 30 seconds now I'm going to show you how to solve it completely silently mm-hmm. and they'll be like ah, yeah, that yeah. moment where the kids are like right that's how you that's how you do it so like like in that exact that isotope calculation when i said well, hang on guys you've got an x and a y and they're all like yeah but we don't know what to do when we've got an x and a y and i said look watch x plus y equals 100 yeah, yeah. and there was this moment where they like get it and that's something by the way that maths teachers have that most other subjects don't get that like moment of dawning realization where they connect stuff that they know with a new kind of thing um and i think that's very powerful um and but 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 for chris the feedback that i gave him was very simple the problem is here that the method works but we don't have any understanding of like how it works or any kind of bigger picture. Okay. So what I would have done is I would have said, okay, let's say I've got two numbers and I would have picked um, say 12 and six. Yeah. I would say to students, what's 12 times six? Let's say 72. I say, great. Okay. What's 12 times 60. And let's say 720. Great. Okay. What's 12 times 60.1. And they'd think about it. and Some of them might give me a rise. You know, let's just estimate. Yeah, is it going to be bigger than seven hundred twenty? And I'd line these all up on the board so that they'd have these three equations all perfectly aligned. Something else, by the way, that math teachers don't get right is the align alignment. Yeah, always make sure when you're um, when you're doing a proof line by line, you're not you're making sure that all of your symbols are aligned. So if you've got twelve times x equals three. In one line your next line has to have the equals directly Mm underneath underneath the previous one the x needs to be directly underneath the previous one and your other side of three takeaway 12 needs to be with the three exactly underneath and if you need to leave a break leave a break because otherwise because students can't follow it because they're going up and down and you're just going down Mm -hmm. yeah you're keeping everything up until up until now in your head, they need it on the board. Anyway, so that's another thing, Um, but that's a distraction. Anyway, so what we say, so you have those three lined up there, 12 times six equals 70. Did I get that right? It is 72, yeah? Yeah, Yeah, 12 times six equals 720. And I put um, 12 times 60.1 equals question mark. And I'd just say, Is it going to be more or less than 720? Students would say more. I said, is it going to be loads more than 720? Is it going to be a little more than 720? It would say a little bit more. So I would just write a little bit more than 720. I would then do the gelosia grid with those numbers. And the answer would come out as, what did I say? It was 60.1 times uh, 12. So it would be uh, 732, no, yeah what's point 0.1 times sorry, 0.1.2, 720, 21.2. Yeah. yeah and, um and, and, and then see, look, 721.2. And I say, look, is that bigger or smaller than 720? And they'd say bigger. I say, is it a little bit bigger than 720? Or is it a lot bigger than 720? They say, it's a little bit bigger. I said, look, I'm not going to go into the ins and the outs of exactly how this works, but you can see it works. You can see it makes sense. You can see how the numbers fit together. And like, that's a kind of number sense type thing to it. Uh, And I think that's another way of kind of anchoring these very abstract formulaic, almost, it's almost a ritual. When you're just going line by line and and imbuing it with the sense of, okay, you know, and and it might not be that we understand every single dot and every single line and blah, fine. But to give it some sense of of meaning, I think is, I think is important.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. We've had over the years on this podcast, particularly with the Chris Bolton episodes, we've had big debates about how before why, why before how in maths. And I think... The the mistake I've made for a long time, I've made many mistakes with, with explanations, but thinking that the why needs to be a proof. And often the problem there is the proof is more complicated than the method and you lose kids before you've got going. But I think if I'm understanding what you're saying, and certainly what I'm taking from it, is that. It just needs to be anchored in something that the kids are comfortable with, have knowledge with, familiarity with. So it's not just some weird abstract thing that's just been dumped upon them that by magic works. They can connect it to something that they've experienced before. And that, for me, feels it feels important. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, that, that's that's my feeling on it. I look. Yeah. And there's a strong caveat here, which is I'm not a math teacher. Um, you know, with you know, when I'm doing this, I'm doing it with equations, which I imbue with meaning first before yes. I even teach the equation itself. You know, I've, I've, you know, done loads of groundwork in trying to explain, if I've got an equation with three variables, I've explained all three variables before Mm. I even get close to the equation. Mm. So it's a, it's a completely different setup. Um, but yeah, so like that Pythagoras example, yeah, the three, four and the five thing, that's not a proof. Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's clearly not a proof to do the proof. You have to draw the triangle with the squares yeah. on either side and blah, blah, blah. And you know, the, have you seen that wooden wheel thing that turns around? Yeah, with the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Obviously that's great if you already have a really strong familiarity with maths. Mm. Yeah. But like, and that's how you prove Pythagoras' theorem. I've not with, I put the pebbles on the beach. I'm not proving Pythagoras's theorem, but I'm like making it make sense to the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I think that's, I think that's enough. Um, and I think that's enough to then go into, right, this is what it now looks like. And it's highly yes. abstract, guys. Uh, I wouldn't use the word abstract, but it looks like crazy with A's and B's and C's. It's really not. Don't worry. I'll show you how to make it work. And it works for these right. And it, and it gets us to figure out how to do the sides of this triangle. You might set up some kind of conflict. You say, right, it works for three, four, and five. It doesn't work for four, five, and six. Yeah. Mm. So if I did four and five, what would this side be? How am I going to work that out? Mm. Okay? So Pythagoras came up with this rule. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Yeah. This is how it's gonna work. I'm gonna show you. And and I think that I think that's probably enough, to be honest. But I think that I think your argument with Chris about how before why or why before how is wrong because you should be doing a bit of why, then the how, then the why again. Yeah. Yeah. Would yeah, trees yeah. would. Yeah, um yeah, yeah. You're, if you're trying to get them to get again, without going too far into the exact proof, you're trying to get them to have some kind of sense. Uh, of what's going on so you do that then you do the process and then you come back to the sense afterwards and you say look guys guys hang on i'm going to show you something really cool now look what happens when i put the numbers three four and five into this boom it works and they're like oh because that takes them full circle that's just really nice it's really pleasing you've not proved squat (laughs) but it works
0: that's nice that's nice um like we we could literally talk all episode about explanations. Um, I want to move on to a couple of other things, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Was there anything else about explanations that we've not covered that you feel is uh, you want to say? Um, no, I, I
1: I think we. I, I mean, I think I touched on the equations thing, which mm. I think is relevant to math teachers when you do stuff like speed. You teach speed and you like you're eleven now, yeah. don't you?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it can speed distance time comes in key stage three. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's right. Fine. So I think that this is one of those ones that I think people get wrong. Um, Because we do, do, when we teach speed distance time, we do speed is distance divided by time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, in my scheme of work, we do speed times time equals distance. And the reason for that is because um, you start by teaching students what speed is. Yeah. Speed is how fast something's going. Yeah. Okay. That means how far something goes in a certain amount of time. So let's take a car. This car goes five meters every second. Yeah. It's got a speed of five meters per second. Yeah. I have a series of diagrams that are in the book where I use a clock wheel to show them how we calculate. Look, look, guys, it goes five meters every second. How far does it go in two seconds? They're like, oh, 10 meters. Okay. How far does it go in five seconds? 25 meters. Very easy. But what they've just done is speed times time equals distance.
0: Okay, yeah. And you just do
1: do tons of those, and then I look, I can... I can turn this into an equation. Very easy: speed times time equals distance. Again, you line everything else; you line everything up nicely. You get them in mini whiteboards, blah blah blah. And the kids are working out how to calculate one given the other two before you know it. And the key thing here is that you're introducing. You've got two unfamiliar things. Remember, we said one of the dots was familiar to unfamiliar. You've got when you're teaching speed, you've got two unfamiliar things. One unfamiliar thing is what is speed. Yeah. Another unfamiliar thing is The equation. Yeah. When you do those two at the same together, you're giving students two very large new pieces of information. So don't do that. Start with one, i.e. speed, and then use that to help you get to the equation. Mm. And then when you get to the equation, not only are you only adding one more thing, but that one more thing is easier to understand because you've already because the speed helps you understand the equation itself. So stuff like that does make a difference, I think.
0: Well, I tell you what, Adam. Let, let's rejig things around a bit now because th- this seems like the perfect time to start talking about maths and science together. So we're we're talking about commonalities here with 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 equations, formula, and so on. Um, having heard the podcast with with you, he's head of maths, isn't he, Sammy? He,
1: no, no, no. Oh, he is now. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't then. He, got it. Oh wait, um, hang on. When I, did he do it? It was this year, wasn't it? This year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah he's think... he's co head of maths. Yeah.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: Um, I think I again. think reluctantly. I think he <laughs> he he absolutely loves teaching um but he, the, so the what was it is it Shakespeare? some some people are born great others achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them and sammy is one of those guys who i think would be happy just teaching the whole time but he's too good to waste yeah it's, yes. not, it's not wasting but he's too good not yes, to spread the love
0: i know what you mean and he is very good no he's very good and i'll put an I've, I've already linked to to that episode once but i'll do it again in the show notes this is a great episode so just just thinking about your school at the moment adam and we'll try and broaden this out a bit um, how important is it for maths and science departments to work to work together? And, and how do you work with, with Sammy and, and the rest of the maths colleagues?
1: Um, the easy answer for me would be to say it's incredibly important and it's crucial. And I think that is the standard answer. Um, I, I don't know. I Look, If I've spent most of my career not talking to people in maths departments <laughs> and my students have somehow managed fine. Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean they couldn't do better Yeah, yeah. yeah but i think the the need for it could be potentially overstated the main the main thing is like by the time students get to year 11 gcse science has tons of math stuff in it yeah but by the time they get to year 11 they've covered it all so it doesn't really like if you if you didn't do any of graph analysis or whatever then you'd still be in with a reasonable shout if you've got a good math department with your kids doing okay in those questions right okay it's earlier on that that you can have some serious problems um and you know i, I remember we <laughs> did uh um when i found out that my students so efficiency calculations for energy transfers so uh, an object receives 80 joules of energy and transfers 60 joules usefully, what's its efficiency? So the equation is um, output over input times 100. Yeah. yeah And I, I was doing this in my year sevens and um, they had literally, I was like, 100 is there to make it a percent. And I just got this like row of blank faces <laughs> and I'm like, to make it a percent. And they're just like, again, like I'm assured by primary um, practitioners that they all know what percent is before they leave primary. That's as maybe they didn't know it when they got to me. Um, and <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? You guys don't know what percent means. And there's just like this. So I went to the math team and I'm like, when do you do percent? They're like, end of year seven. And I'm like, right.
0: Right. Well, okay, well yes. there we go.
1: So, I mean, the easiest thing for me was I just cut out the times 100 in the booklet. Oh, yeah? okay. Just leave it as a decimal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then when I explain the equation, I say, look, it's 0.8. What that means is that for every one joule that yeah, goes okay. in, 0.8 is useful. Yeah. And that's enough. Um, and actually that, that's, to be honest, that's occasionally a bit easier to understand yeah. than adding the percent business, uh, even though essentially you're saying the same thing. Um, so that was a big one. There was another one where we had to question in an exam, which is, it which was a centralized exam paper, um, which had a question about, um, uh, melting points and there was a question about the range of melting points I said which which metal had the largest range of mm. of course which it melted or something like that and um i had a class of 30 and not one of them got it right one of them got it right and i was like well hang on this is bloody easy <laughs> and um, i went to the math team and i was like when do they learn range and like, oh not yet I'm like, well All right. you know, so i'm not gonna go you know take it out of the assessment like i'm not gonna but i don't want to it's not it's not my job to do their job right i'll just mm. push it off till later um so there is stuff like that when it comes to um Um, rearranging equations especially if your maths this is a big one a very big one you it's really very very sensible to make sure you've learned the method they do in maths yes
0: um,
1: rather than brute forcing your own methods so again we do successful elimination with inverse operations so i follow the technique that they use in maths specifically um
0: and that's assuming of course Adam that there's a single technique you learn in maths right which, which which, isn't a given I think no. in many schools particularly for algebra is the big one whether solving equations again will be a big one and, and rearranging formula very related you may have three or four different methods bombing around in the maths department and that's when you can get into trouble right
1: yeah yeah definitely we have we, we again we're quite lucky at my school we have departmental autonomy um, which is that we dictate our own teaching and learning which is why the maths department uses loads of group work and we don't use any right okay. um, and but but the we're frequently reminded that the word do you know the etymology of the word autonomy. No. So the etymology of the word autonomy. So Thanos, my boss, teaching a learning guy, he's Greek. Auto right. is self, and nomi okay. is like nomos is like law. It's self law. It's not about just doing whatever you want. It's about picking a rule and sticking to it. Ah,
0: nice. So
1: the 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 great benefit of having or departmental autonomy is that you get to pick what you like. Mm. The flip side is that you then have to stick to it. Right. Yeah? Okay. Hey, you've you've got to commit. Um, so as so our department we have one way that we use to solve equations the math department has one way that it uses to solve equations so that makes collaboration dead easy if I had you know if we didn't have departmental agreement or if I had no departmental agreement in the math department I wouldn't bother like what's yes. the point you know I've got 30 kids in my class there'll be five different problem solving strategies in there I'm not going to I'm not going to tailor my instruction for all five of those. I'm just going to be like, right, sod what you're doing in maths. This is what you're doing in here. Um, So stuff (laughs) like that. Do you have any
0: conflicts, Adam? Sorry? Are there there any conflicts? Are there any ways that science do things that the maths department's different in terms of procedures?
1: Um, Yeah, yeah, of course there are. Because we're busy. Uh, And we don't (laughs) even, we don't, sometimes we don't even realise until we get there. Um, You know, stuff like, I have no idea how in the maths department they teach students how to draw a tangent to a curve hmm. yeah it's really difficult I know how I do it I have a roller coaster method which I think is great but I don't <laughs> think it's the way they do it in the maths department uh, and often I don't realize until it's too late and I'm like oh bugger how do you do this in maths and unless I've got a kid who's like oh don't worry I know the chart for this one I'll teach everybody and stuff like they have you know, our math department spends a lot of time on ratios because it's such a huge part of the course yeah. at the moment. And they have a specific method called the box method. Um, it's like up, down, side to side. They've got a chart and it's really nice. I don't know it. Um, and I came really quite unstuck when um and actually i needed to be taken down a peg a bit because when i taught my first year 10 class in my current school and i was teaching them how to solve uh, in chemistry we use ratios the whole time because mm-hmm. we're using molar ratios it's like one mole of methane to two moles of oxygen yeah and you've got to manipulate those and i have a specific strategy that i use and the kids were like oh I'll just i'll just use the box method and i'm like guys i don't know and i came from a school <laughs> where the mass department were like again just normal all over the shop and i was like i don't care what you're doing in math this is what you're doing in here they're like Really, you should let <laughs> us do it our way, and I'm like, <laughs> no. And then, and then I saw what they were doing, and I'm like, oh wow, that's okay. You guys do it your way, um and then so I learned the method. So you know, but again, like if I hadn't, this <laughs> has still been fine. Yes, uh, it's just about you know. I think we do. We we. I think we probably oh, there was some flaming round with the argument with the with the mass department about decimal places or something <laughs> in right. mass 47.0 is the same as 47 but in science oh, it's right, not okay. so, uh, yeah. some absolute nonsense like frankly i couldn't give a shit about <laughs> um it's i just don't have the intellectual headspace to get upset about things like that the difference between a formula and an equation some people yeah, care so much, no, I just I, yeah, I just don't care. I just, I can't bring myself to care. People are like, well, you've got to be accurate. And I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. I just don't. Like, no, you know, no. can, can you imagine? That, like, well, we're launching Saturn V, but there's a big problem because, you know, the coders have called a formula an <laughs> equation when they should have called the equation a formula. Like, honestly, like, it just, you know, so there's some stuff that I can't bring myself to care about. Other things that we should collaborate more, we just, nobody has the time um uh, and but the 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 things that we do work together on is stuff like culture which is really important so um there's a chant that they use which is clear called clear working so i'll go clear working and they go clear thoughts and i'll go clear thoughts and they'll go clear working
0: nice
1: um and it's like it's like totally embedded and it means that you know, I can have a massive go at them about making sure they're showing they're working and stuff, mm. but why not just double the more than double the power? Because it's now not just me and Sammy saying that in our class; it's both of us saying it the whole time to them, yes. and it like amplifies um, and it kind of amplifies the effect, the cut through, the likelihood of it working, uh, and and of course, like collaborating about individual students makes a big difference. Um, so, but but yeah, look, I'm, you know. Obviously, we could do more. Everyone could do more. Is it the thing that keeps me up at night? <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned there, Adam, um, that in maths, they do a lot of great work. And again, from from the podcast that Ollie did with, with Sammy, listeners would have heard that. But in science, not so much. And you have departmental autonomy. Would you have people in your departments, and obviously, we not interested in naming names or anything who would want to do more group work but can't or is it is there individual autonomy how how does it work there um
1: so we have we have a departmental handbook right which is which dictates our teaching and learning um and when it comes to things like um how we explain something that's always done from the teacher Mm. when it comes to independent practice every class is expected to have independent practice on everything that they've been taught but like that's almost the the bar, yeah. Mm. If a person's meeting the bar and they want to exceed it, uh-huh. then then I have no problem with that. Um, the, so the kind of group work that I was doing involved students figuring stuff out for themselves and things like that. It's just absolute nonsense. But you know, I have, you know, I I'm blessed that we've got a very talented team. Um, sorry, I shouldn't actually say that because because I think I think actually saying that sells them short. I'm blessed that I've got a team who are working really hard at becoming better teachers um i don't consider myself like to be gifted i just trying different things um in a different way um sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh, and i think that's true for the department as a whole but i've got people who are just smashing it in the lesson lesson after lesson and so sammy is running cpd next term so in the first term the whole school splits in two half of the school is with me doing modeling half the school is with my colleague doing writing so like humanities and stuff are with them. And I was with, um, maths and technology and stuff like that. Um, and next time we have carousel. So people get to choose. I think I'm doing retrieval practice and Sammy is doing stuff on group work. Now, if one of my colleagues who's smashing it out of the class comes to me, and says like, Adam, you know, I've seen them do it. I want to learn how they do it. I'm absolutely 100% not going to stop them. No way. But if I then walk into their lesson and they're doing crap group work, <laughs> And I say to them afterwards, do you think that was good group work? And they say, yes, then we're in trouble. Hmm. Then we're in trouble. But if I go in and I see they're doing the same strategies that Sammy are using and participation ratios through the roof, and the kids are holding each other accountable uh, and they're just learning absolutely tons. Uh, and it is blended. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like it's not, their lessons are not hundred yeah, percent group yeah. work. Yeah. It's blended with explicit, direct teacher led instruction and, um, and if they if they're getting that right, then uh, I'd, I'd be a I'd be a madman. I'd be an, I'd be a, a crazed ideologue to stand in their way.
0: <laughs> Got it right. I want to ask you two questions before we move on to questions from Twitter. But the two biggies, Adam, if that's all right. Yeah, boy. So I f- <laughs> don't think I've ever been called out on the show, but I'll take it. Um, silence, first, Adam. What role does silence play in your lessons, and how's that changed over the years?
1: Um I do love a bit of silence. Mm. Um well there is the group work versus non group work thing. Yep. The, I used to do a lot of group work and I don't anymore. Um and my students do get a lot of independent practice and that's important to me because it's my way of knowing that each student is working. Um as is,
0: is that silent practice. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then every so often I can hear the noise like pattering up a little bit. Uh, And that's often when questions are starting to get quite tricky, Mm. Um, which again is, I'm generally of the belief that questions should get harder through a question set, but students should be getting better at them. So if things, it's not about making the questions harder, it's about making them balance the whole way through. So that's firstly, if students are starting to talk about the work, then that is feedback for me that maybe it's not pitched right. Um, which is which is useful uh, but also sometimes i might want to chuck something that's just fiendish at them and let yeah. them have at each other and and argue with each other about the best way to deal with it with some classes yeah with my <laughs> some of my other groups i don't do that uh, because it would be carnage um, yeah, yeah. but with some groups yeah definitely I'll, I'll give them a crack at that yeah again, i'm not talking huge amounts of lesson time but but you know enough um, but so I so think...
0: the rule, the, sorry Adam, the rule when they're working for for most of your classes is is it silence? But if you you can have a quick word with your neighbour if you're stuck on summer or is it quite kind of blanket silence?
1: Uh, it varies. It, it, I don't have like a cast iron rule. Yeah. I sort of I'd rather play it um, sure. as I see it in the room. Um, there will be times. There are plenty of times which they are absolutely not to speak to a neighbour. Um, Cause yeah, it just kills my ability to know if what they've done is their own work. Yeah, of um, unless you're doing all the stuff that Sammy does, which I don't do, um, cause I'm not skilled enough. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, science is important. And as time has gone on, I've understood that silence also has a kind of character and flavor to it. That there are different types of silence. um, different feelings to the silence there's a the silence as students first start working and then there's the silence where they're really engrossed and focused mm. on a task so yeah. i wrote an article recently about this called golden silence yeah Where like classic error that i've made and i see teachers making is that students have just started working they're quiet and you start calling and register and yeah. then the noise starts to bubble back up again and i think it's because like students they're not like fully absorbed in the task yet it means that Any small distraction just kills it. Whereas if you wait just a little bit longer and every student's head is down and everyone's got their pen scratching away and they're thinking about this, they're less liable to that kind of disruption. And it's at that point that you call your register. It's at that point if a kid's put their hand up because they're missing an exercise book, it's at that point that you go to them. Yeah, If you have to wait for three minutes without your exercise book, while I get silence and make sure that I can take my eyes off everyone, they won't get disturbed. I'm, I'm doing that. Yes. So it's, you know, there, there's a, there's a characteristic flavor and like, and like that, that thing when you talk about the silent explanation, yeah, that moment when the kids get it, mm. you can feel it. Yeah. You don't necessarily hear anything, but you can feel it. Yeah. Uh, and so I do a lot of, I do a lot of what Douglas calls the hundred percent cycle, which is about getting a hundred percent attention. So I say, um, you know, let's say kids are just finishing writing. I say, okay, I start by saying pens down. Eyes up here. Thank you. Okay, can everyone please fetch their purple pen and hold it up? And then, uh, you know, your listeners won't be able to see it, but like I'm like craning my neck, I'm looking attentively, I bring my arms out and I like kind of gesture in towards me like a funnel type motion. Uh, and I'm getting a hundred percent attention because if I do it any other way, I introduce like this choppiness where not every kid is doing the thing that I want them to be doing. Some people call it megalomaniacal. Um, <laughs> and I don't have a problem with that. Teach like an attention fascist is my motto. <laughs> um, because like fundamentally attention is the most precious commodity and it's, it's the first hurdle if they're not paying attention to you they're not going to learn anything so obviously you need to direct their attention so you slow those instructions down you get 100 percent. you make sure they're all attending and there is a silence involved with that it's a silence of waiting till everyone has followed your instruction and everyone is attending to the right thing Uh, and I don't personally have a problem with that so yeah silence is great we do also have like um, you know there's loads of verbal response in my class where students are talking and have opportunities to express themselves I think one of the FAQs in the book is about this Um, uh, and you know don't don't, like I think oracy is important the way that we part of my job is to teach science the biggest part of my job is to teach science and part of my job is to turn these children into effective adults and part of that is being able to express themselves verbally Uh, so yeah we do that as well in class I'll expect them to express themselves verbally we do a think pair share every so often Um, uh, so yeah
0: Got it. The great answer. Fantastic. And I love that golden silence. I think it's a really, really great concept. I love that. Um the other the other question that wasn't on my list to ask you, but I have to ask it you, Adam, is just a little bit about retrieval. And I know you could talk all day about retrieval and, and so could I. I wanna I want you to talk briefly about carousel um and what it does. But I also just I just want to introduce retrieval um, with this. So when when Daisy Christodulou came on the sh- the podcast for the second time, when she just brought her teachers versus tech book out, which I'm a big big fan of, she she explained what she saw as the role of retrieval in a way I'd never heard it explained before. But I think I'm on board with it. So I could be completely um, misinterpreting Daisy, but I don't think I am here. She she said that she doesn't think that. AI and computers or whatever will ever replace teachers because teachers can do something that computers or whatever can't, which is, as you've mentioned here, and we've talked about inspire, gesture, direct attention, pick up on these invisible cues, all this kind of thing. So teachers, perhaps their their key role will be towards introduce new ideas, hopefully help students understand, whereas what technology can do better than any teacher is help students remember things because it can design personalised retrieval schedules in a way that a a single teacher teaching 30 different students simply couldn't. One child needs more practice on this, another child's forgotten this and needs more practice on this. Do, Do you see it that way? Do you see that as one of the roles of technology to be help, to help students remember things they once knew or is, is it not that simple or is it too simple or what, what's going on there?
1: Oh boy, oh boy. When we started Carousel, if you'd have asked me this question two years ago, sorry, not quite two years ago, 20 months ago, um, the thing that we were most interested in was the kind of algorithmic learning that you're talking about yeah where you've got a computer that figures out the best time to present this student with this question
0: because this Um, is like the holy grail this optimal spacing schedule and stuff this is seems like the holy grail of kind of cognitive science research yes
1: except it's not (laughs) it's okay and i'll tell you why the reason it's not that's what we wanted to do at first and then i thought about it and then i was like that's ridiculous. And the reason why it's ridiculous is because of just how idiosyncratic it is. Mm -hmm. If you just think about the variables, so you're talking about the optimum spacing gap, which for those who don't know is if I, let's say I've got um, three opportunities to do retrieval practice on, um, on concept X, I've got three opportunities and I've got a test on day 10. Should I do those opportunities on day one, two, and three? Or should I do it on day one, day three, day five? Should I do it on day one, day five, day seven? How should I do it? And how should I spread that over time? That is called the optimum spacing gap, the best time. Yeah. And um, at first, I thought, great, this is what we need to aim for. Yeah. Um, but it's just too idiosyncratic because it depends on uh, the student's um, kind of innate uh, speed at which they grasp ideas the student's innate speed at which they forget ideas is not going to be universal. This specific thing, X, this X is different to Y. The way that X was taught in the first place, how well student understood X in the first place, the prior knowledge surrounding X that the student brought when they first learned X. The prior knowledge that the student has since learned relating to X that they now bring to every retrieval opportunity they have on X. X itself some things are inherently easier to remember and retain and some things are more slippery the cues with which x was associated when it was first taught i mean like this is this is madness yeah so Mm. for a long time people people kept saying so when are you going to bring in this adaptive spacing Mm. business yeah yeah. and and i said look we will do it at some point but it's low on the list and because i personally think that if you just make sure you're using a randomizer you spread stuff over time you're going to do okay yeah. And it might not be a hundred percent, but you're going to get to 80 or 90 percent and you'll be absolutely fine. And that's why I kept saying and I kept saying and I kept saying. And I was, I was a bit worried because I'm saying it with quite a confident, <laughs> confident voice on. And yeah, people yeah. are just like taking it as words. Uh, and then a few months ago, Pooja Agarwal um, and colleagues published a nice big review of Retrieval Practice. It's available on her website, retrievalpractice.org. Do you want to guess what her website's about? <laughs>
0: I think yeah, I can. It's about retrieval yeah.
1: practice. Shockingly, they did uh, well, good, good yeah, domain
0: yeah. name. That like, they've done well to get that. Smashed it. Early with smashed that it. One.
1: Really. Good. Um, <laughs> there, there are there are cog science, There are poor coxian enthusiasts all over the world wishing they'd have got there first. <laughs> um, and yeah, anyway. So in in her research, she basically in the conclusion, she was like, you know, they analysed hundreds of studies and they looked at fifty in detail, and basically it didn't make a difference what the spacing gap was. Yeah, yeah. it was like basically so long as as so long as people were spacing, it worked. That's yeah. Interesting, and and her recommendation it? is to one less about spacing and make sure people are doing retrieval practice more right why why is this important Mm. because what i have come to realize is that we have a brilliant online learning platform uh carousel works you take you turn your content into a series of questions and answers like what is the word equation for photosynthesis you put the answer up you turn them into flashcards you give access to students you set quizzes you get feedback you get to mark their work everything's beautiful analytics lovely done the thing that I've realized is that carousel by itself is nowhere near enough. Let Mm -hmm. me explain. Um, we had a request, a teacher asked us about a year ago. They said their kid, their kids were cheating.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So
1: their kids were opening up the flashcards and they were opening up the quiz next to it and they were just cheating. Ah, okay. And they said, can you help me please? I said a few things. Okay, there's a few things we can do to help to shape what we call shaping the path. Uh, so we can make sure that if you open another tab, you can't access the flashcards if you've got the quiz open mm, as well. Yeah, that's one yeah, thing cool. we can do. And uh, there's another thing we can do, which is that we shuffle the questions so that you can't have a kid texting each other, What's the answer to question yeah, five? Okay. Because yeah, my question yeah, five yeah. is different from your question five. But what I said to them and what I still maintain is that if your kids are cheating, that's your problem. Yeah. 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 Like, why do your kids think that they can get away with cheating? yes what, hang on a second you've noticed that your kids are cheating and you're talking to me yeah
0: yeah
1: why aren't you talking to them <laughs> yeah, yeah. right so so <laughs> i i have a very deliberate script and process that i follow when a kid cheats yeah it's called the phone call uh a kid cheats you know let's say uh, it was the word equation photosynthesis so they i can tell they've cheated because i can see it's googled mm. or i could tell mm. in class they just mm. don't know it i call the parents say hi uh, is that mrs davis yeah yeah okay I'm going for Mrs. Barton. Yeah, oh, it's Mr. Boxer. It's, it's Craig there. Yeah, yeah. Can, you, can you bring him over? Uh, Craig, Craig, yeah, you want to like speak? Yeah, yeah, Craig. Craig, can you hear me? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Craig, uh, what's the word equation for photosynthesis? Craig? Are
0: you, you, oh, <laughs> we're doing this? <laughs> I'm not done. <laughs> Great, I'm here, Mr. Boxer. I'm here.
1: Craig, Craig, can, can you hear me? Okay. Did, you want me? Yeah. I'll read the question for i read the question for you, Yeah. What's <laughs> a, the only Yeah. It's crucial. It's it's excruciating, right? Yeah. And 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 then and then we have the talk with Mum present, and I say, look. uh I said, I'm not going to accuse Craig of, of <laughs> doing anything here because I know he's a nice boy. I know he wants to do well. I know he wants to impress me. I know he wants to make me proud. I know he wants to make you proud. But it's clear that something's gone wrong here. I'm going to call you up next week and we're going to do exactly the same thing. And Craig's nice. going to give me all of the correct answers. Yeah. That's how you beat cheating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is the thing, right? No computer can do that. No, no. No computer can do that. Because when Craig then gets it right, he gets it right for me. Yeah. He gets it right for his mum. He's not getting it right for the computer. He doesn't give a shit about the computer. Yeah, yeah. He's getting it right for me. The way the the Education Endowment Foundation, they have a toolkit on homework, right? And one of their principles, principle number five, is it has to be integrated with classwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to Mm -hmm. show students how much it means to you because students tend to think of homework as just something they need to tick off, say they've done it because it's part of the policy. uh, And teachers are the same. They're like, oh, well, it's part of the policy. I've got to set homework. They don't check it. They don't mark it. The kids know. And, and the accountability just drops, it plummets. Yeah. You can have the best program in the world. If Carousel, look, Carousel, by the end of this year, will be a world-beating homework platform. But however good it gets, without teachers using it, without the, that, that body in the room, like building that relationship, showing yes. the students how much you love them, showing students that you care about their results, showing students that it's important to you, showing students that, you're, that you are attending to it, that you're paying attention to it, that nothing is more important to you than their long-term knowledge over time, that you think you are wasting your time and you think you are wasting their time if they don't go away and do retrieval practice at home. When you, you No computer in the world can show students that. But Carousel will be the best quizzing program in the world by the end of the year, but it will still, be absolutely armless if it doesn't have a skilled and effective teacher in the classroom using it, and it will be a homework platform, and it will always be a homework platform. But the teacher needs to integrate it with what they're doing in the class; otherwise, it doesn't work. So, so Daisy's right, and Daisy's wrong. That it would be your what, right. what you've said <laughs> of Daisy, yeah. So that the, I I I do think that if we can get an optimum spacing gap, things will be better, and I do think that computers have a very powerful role to play in this hard work of retrieval, but without the teacher there cajoling, yeah. encouraging, showing the students that it matters, showing the students that you get, like that it's not gonna happen. It's yeah. just not gonna happen. So the two have to go hand in hand, which is why like a lot of the we've been doing a lot of webinars for Carousel. They are entirely not focused on technically how to use it. They, and they are entirely focused on how do you get your kids to use it the best. So that phone call is part of our training. Right, the way we deal with kids, the way we pick up. How do I notice which kids are doing carousel properly? Okay, I notice through my do now. Mm. So I do a do now at the beginning of my lesson. I, if I ask a random teacher on the street, I say, "Why do I start my lesson with five questions at the beginning?" They're like, "Oh, it's a nice settling. It gives them retrieval practice." Wrong, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Both of those things are useful characteristics of the do now. But the best reason to do a do now is because it gives you information about whether or not your students are doing retrieval practice at home. I have. On my GCSE chemistry question bank, I have 550 questions. Yeah. If I wanted to ask every single question twice throughout the two years that I have my students, I would need, say, uh, I need about 280 lessons. Mm. I have 205.
0: Yeah,
1: And that's only to ask every question twice, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is <laughs> laughably not enough.
0: Yeah,
1: Obviously, the bulk of the work it has to be done by the students. Obviously, it has to be done at home obviously I have to build a computer program that's as good as possible to help them do that but if I'm not talking to them about it if I'm not checking it marking it showing them how much I care showing them that if they don't do this they won't learn and and seeing in class and using the in class information not as evidence about what they do know and what they don't know yeah fine that's important as well but the main thing for me is ah if a kid got this one wrong they're not doing their retrieval at home right Mm. and that for me is a bigger problem i put up so every week whenever i set i set homework every single week through carousel and the do now on the day that it's due are the three questions from the carousel homework that had the lowest score yeah so we have a feedback function that gives you the questions that had the lowest score yeah. and it also gives you ones that you've and specific responses that you've selected as worthy of discussion yeah. so that first category the things that most students got wrong that's the do now at the beginning lesson why because i say to students very clearly I say, look, if you get this wrong now in class, it shows me that you sat at home at your computer, got it wrong and shrugged your shoulders and said, I don't care. Mm. And said, I'm happy with the fact that I don't know this. I'm going to do nothing about the fact that I don't know this. That for me is completely unacceptable. It is unacceptable for you to say it's okay not to know stuff. It's unacceptable for you to walk away from that computer. I would never do it for you. Can you imagine if I sat Mm -hmm. planning your lesson and said, oh, actually, I don't know how to teach that. I'm not going to bother. Can you imagine if I did that? I'd be failing you. If you do that, you're failing me. And they get that talk at the beginning. And we put those questions up and they falter because it's the first time and that's OK. And I explain to them, it's your first time. It's OK. But I want you to know that next time it won't be OK. And we do it next time and they do those questions. And if, and I ask a student to explain to me, I'll say, why did I choose these questions? Craig and Craig will explain to me because if a student gets them wrong here, then it shows that they just walked away from the computer. Yeah. And I say, and I say, okay, fine. Put your hand up if you did get them wrong. Right. And a student might put their hand up and I say, thank you for your honesty, stay at the end. And then I say, and then during the lesson, very quietly, I'll go over to another student and I say, I saw you get them wrong stay behind and we'll have a very tough conversation because not only did they get it wrong, but they lied to me as well. I'm not an idiot, but I don't know that unless I've been walking around and looking at their answers. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm doing that to gain information about whether they're doing the homework properly. Computer can't do that. Only I can do that.
0: I'm really pleased to ask you about retrieval there, Adam. I wasn't going to, but yeah, it's, it's brilliant that it reminds me again, just, just two quick things to say. Uh, that was the most common question we used to get in the early days of diagnostic questions. And we still do. They'd say, um, kids have found ways to cheat or (laughs) we'd get this one. The kids aren't doing the homework. Can you do something about it? I thought, well, what, what what do you centralized attentions at Ed headquarters? Like, you, yeah, it's and again, I was very patient at, at the start, but now it's yeah, it's I, I do tend to give them. I just say, well, what what would you do if they didn't do another, you know, their normal homework that you'd set them? But anyway, anyway, you've covered that well. And the other thing that really resonated was I call this the illusion of retrieval, and I see this a lot when I'm fortunate enough to watch watch lessons. You see this particularly for starters or do nows or whatever you want to call it. The kids not taking it as seriously as the teacher thinks they're taking it, so you're often getting mad. Whether the if you ask a kid what's the purpose of the starter or the do now, and it'll they'll say something like, "Oh, it's so the teacher can do the register, or it's so we can be busy until whilst well, some of the other kids are arriving late and stuff like that." and the teacher thinks that by doing the do now they've done retrieval practice so it's kind of tick that box and it's this as I, say, I call it the illusion of retrieval it's it doesn't matter like the setting the questions of course that's important but it's the kids realizing why they have to put the effort in why they why they have to think hard about it why they can't just copy the answers down from the board or ask their mate how to do it or just out see it as a bit of a sit-off it's that that's just as important as the actual setting up the retrieval opportunity but, but anyway we, we, we've covered no, that. no no i agree
1: in, in in the book i call this building a culture of retrieval yeah it's a culture nice. around what retrieval is why it's important and yeah. a shared understanding and uh, it's interesting because uh you made up a word there which is what do you call it the illusion yeah. of retrieval yeah uh, i made up a word about 10 days ago called busy yeah, tricking yeah busy tricking yeah busy tricking is when a student looks really busy and they're nice. tricking you into thinking that they're being effective. So the examples that I see where kids spend <laughs> ages writing out the questions,
0: Yeah, yeah like,
1: yeah. why are you hard. writing out the question? Like, that's just not important in the slightest. Or where students will write like the beginning of an answer. So they're right yes. things like, the question is, what is photosynthesis? What's the word of question? Is They right? The word of question, photosynthesis <laughs> and then yeah. leave it blank, that's right? Good. And if you're not circulating properly, you don't notice that that's happening, yeah. right? So again, you know, this is where the teacher's role has to come in. Um, You've got to realize this stuff. You've got to notice it by again. I'm not. I'm never going to tell someone to do something about specific concrete action by actively walking yeah. around the classroom yeah, by yeah, taking yeah. in the books. I, you don't need to mark them, right? We do the do nows in the back of the book so that it's easy for us to see them. Yes. Yeah. So every do now goes in the back of the book, so I can take a kid's book in and I can leaf through their do nows within about ten seconds and tell whether or not they're doing a do now properly. Yes. It's, it's not complicated. Yeah. They're they're very bad at disguising. <laughs> so. All of that needs to be done; otherwise, it's just like you said, it's just a complete illusion. And, and 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 there's there are red flags as well. You can you can notice if this is happening to you by the most common question I get is, "My do now is taking forty minutes. Yeah, what am I supposed to do?" Yeah, I'm like, yeah. "Your do now is taking forty minutes because your kids don't know anything."
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: your problem yeah, yeah. isn't your problem isn't the do now. Your problem is retrieval practice outside no. of the classroom. Yeah. yeah. So stop doing those do nows. If the kids don't know anything, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Just take five flashcards, put them on carousel, tell the students that they'll be. The will do now next week will be on just these five yeah and then check those yeah. and if they don't get if they haven't got them if pretty much every student hasn't got them all then you've got big problems yeah yeah. But, you yeah, know yeah. if individual students haven't you keep them behind you explain to them how important it is and then next week there's 10 flashcards and then the week after there's 15 but as long as you give students questions that they can't answer because they've not seen the content for 12 months and they're not doing any retrieval practice at home like that's why it's taking 40 minutes because you're spending hours going over the answers yes. to things that they don't know
0: that's interesting. Um, that's great, Adam. Now I'm, I'm conscious of your timing. I'm conscious that, that you're you're knackered, but I've got one more. I do have one more question. I want to squeeze in before the Twitter questions. Is, is that okay? Can, can, you take, can you take it? Okay. And it's but it's a biggie. Again, I do warn you. It's a biggie. It's about problem solving. Um, this <laughs> is yeah. I know. We'll just box this off in two minutes. So we've had entire episodes on problem solving. Um, I've really, really wrestled with with how to get kids better at solving problems i'll tell you where i'm at at the moment adam and i want to know your experiences and particularly how this works in science uh, for for you anyway i think for kids to get good at solving problems um by problems i mean more kind of non-routine non-routine questions um they need background knowledge they need to know their stuff but then they also need something else they need to be armed with problem solving strategies they've got a method select all this kind of thing and it's I found it quite difficult to get kids at doing that. Doing that In the past, my go-to strategy has just been to give them loads of problems and hope that they'll magically become problem solvers. Now, I, I don't think that's enough. I think they need to be explicitly taught some of these strategies, get them linked together, and so on and so forth. I've got a whole... I could babble on about this for ages. But I guess what I'm interested in is, how do you get your kids good at problem solving? <laughs> like is it a big thing inside like, i assume it's an issue right uh, Look, surely any question is a problem yeah, yeah but there's you, know, there's you know this you know these your root so the photosynthesis thing yeah. that's that that to me is more kind of recall right that's routine yeah yeah
1: yeah i'm, I'm um, thinking
0: of applying that knowledge in a, in an unfamiliar context, yeah yeah but kind of i
1: mean stuff. even that like yeah so that's 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 an obvious one right okay so mm. that's there's a uh, there was, so in science they do AO1, AO2, AO3, yeah. 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 The same
0: ups, yeah. Absolute
1: nonsense. Yeah, yeah there's correct. this one question that was <laughs> that was marked as AO2, which is explain why uh plant root hair cells do not have chloroplasts. Yeah?
0: Okay. So
1: they don't have chloroplasts because chloroplasts do photosynthesis and root hair cells are underground, there's no light underground. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that's AO2 because like it, it's a problem because you've got to tie together your knowledge mm. of chloroplasts yeah, with yeah, your yeah. knowledge of photosynthesis and roots. Yeah. Okay. So fine. I just taught the kids that root hair cells don't have chloroplasts because there's no light underground, so they don't do yeah. photosynthesis. Yeah. So so the, the distinction between recall and yeah, and yeah. what isn't is sometimes a bit is sometimes a bit dodgy. Yeah. So I'd like to say today's problem solving is tomorrow's recall. Yeah. Or today's A O two is yeah. yep. today's A O two is tomorrow AO, tomorrow's A O one. Yeah. Um, so and even with those problem strategies like like, you know, if a student sees a problem that that is, you know, the problem representation is a fancy term that is one that they've seen already or is a style they've seen already. Then they're more likely to be able to solve it. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, yes, you're right. There does seem to be some kind of and, and there are specific strategies you can teach as well, like the math department where they teach these explicit strategies, right angle, triangle, Pythagoras or trig. Yeah, is yeah. a problem solving. It's an explicit yeah. problem solving strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, so something really interesting they do. They do when they mark mocks. Yeah, they do next day delivery. So the kids do the mocks on the Monday. They get them back on the Tuesday. Okay. They mark them Monday night. And I'm like, I'm like. To start that's mental, because (laughs) how do you have the time to do that? And secondly, like it's bad as well because you should be giving them space. (laughs) Because when you give them space, then you have the opportunity to retrieval practice. And one of the messages was like, no, idiot. Um, the reason why we do it the next day is because we want them to remember which chant they used to answer the questions. Because if they got something wrong, we want them to be able to say, Ah, I used X chant and I should have used Y chant. Which if you leave space, they're not going to remember. So and like that's genius. That is like like genuine genius yeah mm. I'm, I'm still not marking mocks by the next day but that is <laughs> genius right yeah, yeah. um so yeah there are explicit problem solving strategies you can teach but what i found what i found in science is that the examiners are smarter than i am and will always find a way to to, to get around that and i think that um that the that, look broadly i broadly i agree with you that the there does seem to be a certain je ne sais quoi that comes with the ability to solve a problem, mm. a certain little magic, the student, a bit of inference. And and even that's unreliable. It might be that they'd get it right one day, but they wouldn't have got yeah. it right the other day. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I can't speak to that because I can't teach it. I don't know. Like, it's not well defined. It's not well explored. Mm. So I can't, all I can do is say, look, the more problems I give them, the more knowledge I give them, the more likely they are to be able to solve. What Like one very brief example is in the first key stage three curriculum, um, I designed from scratch. We did a unit on, like ecology biodiversity and stuff um, food chains and food webs and there's this thing called bioaccumulation which is how bad stuff builds up in a food system so uh, like if you get mercury in the water yeah. Your tiny little crustaceans will eat like a tiny bit of mercury and then your fish will eat the crustaceans and they'll have more mercury than any one of the fish. Uh, and then the bigger fish will eat loads of the smaller fish and they'll have more mercury than any one of the smaller fish. And eventually you get to your top predator, your osprey or whatever, and it's got loads of mercury in it. It just like builds up in the system yes. by accumulation. We consciously deliberately chose not to teach it. Yeah. I just didn't want to. Yeah. It just wasn't part of the curriculum. I put, a, I snuck a question into the assessment on it because I felt that if a student knew about food chains mm. and a student knew about how many different, how different animals eat different number of things in the food chain below them, they should be able to have a decent stare, but working out what bioaccumulation is. So I tried in a question about bioaccumulation, um, given a specific food chain and like three quarters of them got it right. Yeah. Cause I taught them really well yeah. about the food mm-hmm. chain stuff. Uh, and we'd gone out of our way to make sure that students knew it really well it was like so embedded that that they just got it not all of them and the yes. wording wasn't perfect and it was clear that they were just like searching and grappling and suggesting rather than concretely saying um but like it does work uh it's just you know with, with it's unreliable um but but yeah i I don't have a great I don't have a great answer beyond what you've said. Just give them loads of problems, give them loads of things to think about, loads of different contexts, loads of different representations, uh, and just hope, I guess.
0: Right, Adam. So to wrap things up, we have got three questions. Well, kind of three or four questions from from Twitter. So this is from your many fans out there. So I'm going to start with the first one. Is from Sam, and I apologize for everybody if I get all your names wrong here, but Sam alterac and he says this i'd like to hear more about balancing workload how can teachers justify grades without bringing home hours of corrections And we swapped a few messages on this and i interpret this from sam as how can we accurately judge students either understanding or progress without just marking for hours and hours and hours on end and evenings and weekends that's my interpretation anyway well what would you reckon adam
1: um yeah i mean uh I mean, the simple answer is you can't, yeah? Uh, but that doesn't mean that marking for hours and hours would give you a good, accurate representation because a grade is part of a distribution. It's about taking the 550,000 students who sat this particular exam and ranking them. That's what mm-hmm. a grade is, yeah? So um, you can't... You are, like this is the problem with the teachers' assessed grades that we had last year. Like, you obviously can't do that because you only know your 30 rather than the remaining... 540 whatever thousand yeah (laughs) um i mean you can get a decent idea like i i think for me it's it's uh you know the pareto principle
0: yes yes
1: so so for anyone who doesn't know the pareto principle is sometimes known as the 80 20 rule Mm. which is for me in teaching it's about how like 20% of the work you do gets you 80% of the results. And then to get to the remaining 100, you have to put in like loads and loads of work. And for me, it's all about finding the stuff that goes into that 20. Mm. Um, You can do 20, if you want to know 100% with reliability of what the kid's grade is, then yeah, you have to do 100% of the work and that's going to take you a long time. But if you want to know it with 80% certainty, then 20% of that original work will probably do. Yeah. It's like the spacing thing we were talking about. Yeah. So yeah, we can spend hours and hours building a beautiful algorithmic uh, adaptive model that will get us up to hundred percent or we can take all of that time and just take 20% of it and get us to 80% and spend the, re- spend the remaining 80% of our time on something else that yes. is also useful. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like I don't, I don't really stress out too much about grades. I sort of, it's a bit like, um, um, the, I can't remember if it was my analogy or someone else's analogy. I can't remember. I think it's in a book somewhere, Um, but it's like being at the top of a hill and rolling a rock down the hill. You know, you know, roughly where it's going to end up. Right. And you could probably, if you had a computer smart enough, you could probably work out exactly where it's going to end up. If you just stand at the top of the hill and roll it down, but like, you're probably not going to do that. And you'd probably take, oh, well, it'll be kind of in this sort of area. And for me, for me, that's generally enough.
0: Got it. And um, without opening a massive can of worms and tell me if this is just a disaster of a question, Adam, um, in terms of kind of marking, where are you on written feedback and stuff? Do it. <laughs> None at all? No. Fair? Okay. <laughs> do you want to elaborate further or, or leave it at that?
1: I mean, what, what is there to elaborate on? I
0: don't know. <laughs> is, is that a conflict at all within your school? Is is it just no. like science making a decision to do that? We or? have
1: departmental autonomy. So when I told Thanos, my boss, that we weren't going to do any comment-based marking, he said, okay, um, in general, people who defend marking say that this is a good way to get to know students' work. It's a good way to give them specific feedback okay. and it's a good way to show them that you get How are you going to do that if you're not going to do comment-based marking? So I went away and I came back and I said, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do, that, going to do the other. And he was like, fine. I've not, marked, I've not marked a book in about five years. Yeah? <laughs> and in all that time, I've taught hundreds of students and one of them has has complained. And she didn't even complain. She was just like, Sir, do you mind just marking my book? And I was like, yeah, actually, I don't. I don't mind. Took me a couple of minutes. And then that was it. I look in tons of books the whole time. I just, I said to you just a few minutes ago that I look yeah. at their do nows. Yeah, I look at their books intently while I'm circulating. They receive tons of feedback from me. But I will be I will leave the profession before I have to take books home again.
0: That's brilliant. And just again, just for, for a final little bit on that, I'd imagine we've got hundreds, if not thousands, of listeners who wish they could do that as well, but but can't make the argument to senior leadership or whatever. What were some of the things that you said to to kind of get around doing it?
1: Um, well, the first thing is test jobs.
0: <laughs> right, okay, yeah
1: um the second thing is um there's a document i made a few years ago called markageddon which you can download and use it's a bit old now but it it makes the case Mm -hmm. um and just like i think it's i think the burden of proof is on i mean i'm bullshit so it's a different story so but if someone said to me you need to mark these books i'd say why Mm -hmm. Uh, and they might say oh because x y z okay what's the evidence that it actually does that um and when they couldn't can't provide me with any because there isn't any yeah um, then i'd say well then i'm not going to do it because you're asking me to do something based on your opinion uh, but not based on any hard evidence we know for a fact that it's a lot of work mm, we know yeah. for a fact that there is no evidence to suggest it's a good thing so you're asking me to do a lot of work based on like nothing really um that's one route um you um test jobs is the best route to be honest uh, but another is look you can just you just say to them that this is how i'm going to give feedback this is how i'm going to check students work mm. uh, but you can come into my room and you can see me circulating and you can see me aggressively monitoring that's the phrase that they use in the states aggressive monitoring where you're not just walking past students while they're working but you're like intently looking at the work that they're doing and you are taking notes as you walk around you might take a mini whiteboard or a clipboard and say oh i need to pick up on that you might just try and remember stuff um i'll do a bit of a blend um and you'll say look i look regularly at their work we do book looks in my department yeah but we don't it's not punitive and it's not about yes. looking for the marking. It's about saying, well, hang on a second. Well, like, what, when these kids, we, we took in all the books, not all the books, we took in a selection of books and we discussed them as a group openly and honestly. We took mine as well. We said, like, I mean, do we really think they need to be writing this many notes? Like, does this actually help them mm. writing this notes? Like which bit of this notes should they write? I think all students should write a, work, a worked example. For, to take the case in point yeah but but more than that i don't know maybe they should maybe they shouldn't that's something that we need to discuss as a department when i look at one kid's book in, from the same class and i see they've only done two questions from the independent practice and i see someone else has done 20 yeah that gives me useful information yes. right but but as i de- and as a head the department it gives me useful information to talking to my teachers about it you know did you even know that this was happening yeah, And if they didn't know, that's one problem. If they didn't know, they didn't do anything about it. That's another problem. If they did know, and they didn't know what to do about it, and they're like, oh, I'm glad you asked, because I, I, I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do here, um, then that's a whole you know, different kettle of fish. Yes. But it, it, none of it is, why haven't you marked this? It's what are we going to do to make sure these students are learning? Uh, and again, by <laughs> without turning you into a um, you know, sub teacher that needs to work for six hours on a Sunday afternoon marking books, which is literal death. So I'm not going to force anyone to do that. You'd you'd have my resignation first.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Okay, this is your two-for-one question. So it was from two different uh, people. So Mr. Taylor Maths says... Where should a teacher who has recently started to engage with education research start? They're going to be
1: test jobs again?
0: (laughs) It wouldn't surprise me. Teachers who wish they'd been trained differently, uh, brackets read better and feel massively behind where they could be. And then Claire Bennett, um, a very similar question. How do you get a group of teachers to align practices after years of not doing that? What are your thoughts on those two?
1: Uh, first question is really difficult. Where to engage with education research first is really hard. It depends on subject to subject. You know, if you're in science, I'd recommend my book. Uh, <laughs> yes. If you're in maths, there's, there's, there's a book that I've heard of. It's purple, I think, um, that, that, that might be okay for this kind of thing. Um, it's how I... Well, that one's, that
0: one's blue, that one, Adam. Oh, is it blue? The purple, oh, the purple's blank. the sequel. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll subtly edit that out. That's
1: fine. <laughs> you know, my dad's colorblind, so he doesn't believe that purple exists. <laughs> He can see blue and he can see red, but he like purple is either blue or red. It doesn't exist. So, wow,
0: okay. Nice.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that's just a complete sidebar. Now you guys know some trivia about my family, which means <laughs> I'm probably a carrier of colorblindness, not colorblind myself. Yes. Um, absolute nonsense. No one cares. <laughs> what was the question? Um, yeah. I don't know. Just read loads, go to a really great school, um, find people, send people videos of you teaching, um get feedback from people who know what they're talking about it's not easy um mm-hmm. yeah
0: like, part of the reason one...
1: part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to expedite that process that yes. process that took me 5 years
0: and what about that follow up where you've got a, a group of teachers so you passionately believe uh, you as a as a head of department in in the things that you've read and, and written about how, how do you get all the teachers on board
1: um again very very complicated mm. uh, question we could genuinely do an entire 3 hour yeah thing on this um part of it is part of it is selection yeah so don't don't hire people who you who don't agree with your pedagogical vision and be clear about that at interview Um, so i will often we give so um we do a full feedback session after the interview lesson yeah. So you do the interview lesson. And then normally what happens is you just go straight into your traditional interview afterwards. Yeah, we do a yeah. full feedback session, 50 minutes to an hour wow. um, where we go through the lesson properly. And, and I will go out of my way to say things like, I don't think you should have done X <laughs> right. to, to see what their response is. And if they like get all like hackles and angry, then I'm like, OK, you know what? Like, fine. You're just not for this school. Mm. yeah you might be absolutely perfect fit in a different place but not here because that's the kind of feedback that we give here Mm. um if they say to me why that's a good answer um and then i'll follow it up and i'll explain and i'll see what they think what they say and if they go yeah yeah that kind of makes sense then then that's a good thing Uh, and then i'll try and check it later and i'll try and circle back to that point later or ask them like what their main takeaways were Mm. and if they completely ignore the thing that i said then that's a problem um Whereas, if they're like, oh, when you said thing, I really need to think about that. That's really great feedback. Then I'm like, we're on to a winner here. Um, and yeah, and we do that in the tradition. We try to do that in the traditional interview as well. We always ask them at the beginning, how did the feedback session go? And if they're like, yeah, it was, you know, it was it was okay, then that's a bad thing. If they're like, it was really interesting, I learned loads, for example, then that's really great. And we have mm. a lot of teachers that do that and they're, they're a winner. So, number one is like, just we have this thing in teaching where we just let, you know, no best way. Everyone does their own thing. It's all fine. We don't do that in my school. Um, there are plenty of schools that do do that. That's fine. No, not us. Um, so that's one. Um, certainly not in our department. Uh, another way is like just training people up. So if you start with a trainee, you know, I've got two trainees this year. I have two trainees last year, one, two trainees the year before. Like it makes a difference. Um, so there's, that. there's also, I mean, you have to assume that most teachers want to do better, and one really simple trick is—it's um, not a trick. One simple thing that I do is, you know, let's say, let's say I'm trying to wean a teacher off PowerPoint. Yeah, we don't use PowerPoint in our department. We teach everything from scratch, from blank canvas with a pen. Um, we use a tablet for it. And let's say I've got teachers wedded to PowerPoint. Um, I said, I said, look, you know, I do a learning walk. I do tons. of I'm in and out of lessons all day, every day. And I said, look, you explained blah, blah blah. How do you think it was? And like, yeah, I think it was okay. I said, can I just can I just show you how I'd do it? Uh, and I go to my tablet and I do blank canvas and I show them how I would explain that. And, and I say, I want them to be really honest with me. Which is better? And they'll say, yours is better. Yeah. To date, no one has said to me that theirs is better. Right. And and they could be lying, but I don't think they are. Um, and I say, look, do you not think that you could have done that? And they're like, you are, probably could have done. I say, look, you want to do the best by your students. This is what we need to do next. And like, no one, no... If you've got a teacher who is so arrogant that they're going to chuck that back in your face, then mm-hmm. you've got bigger problems than yeah. getting them to pedagogically align. Because they're going to be kicking off problems with deadlines, with organization, with management and professional courtesy and responsibility and accountability. Teaching and learning is the least of your problems. Yeah, But the majority of teachers, they want to do the right thing. They'll say, that is better. I'd like to do it like that. Can you help me? Um, and that, you know, for so long, we've had people giving feedback, but who can't show people what it would look like, what it should look like. You know, when someone said to me, you know, that, that lesson resource wasn't differentiated. Okay. Could you just tell me exactly what a well differentiated resource for this lesson would look like? Well, I'm not a subject specialist, then fuck off. right? (laughs) Don't give me the feedback. Yeah. (laughs) So unless I'm willing to say I, you know, or I might say, actually, you know, let's go and what right now, you know, right now let's go and observe x and see what they're doing and we'll go in and we'll come out and i say do you not see how good that explanation was and they're like yeah it really was and i'm like this is what we need to do let's mm-hmm. go practice for your next lesson mm-hmm. uh and you know the same applies with all of this stuff you know if a teacher's not circulating properly i say look it, you can see look i picked up their book i take pictures of kids works kids work while i'm in but i said look they didn't understand it yeah, you weren't circulating, so you didn't know about it. Like, if you, if a person says to you, I don't care, or a person still holds to it and says, but most of them still did, then you've got problems that are bigger than teaching and learning. And you need to deal with that separately completely. But if a teacher says to you, and what will normally happen is, yeah, you're right, then of course you're going to get alignment. Because people start to realise that they need to learn, they need to get better. And most teachers are quite comfortable with
0: it. That's good, Adam. That might be the first, it could be the first F-bomb in six years of the podcast That as well. We we started with Dick and we progressed to this uh, very quickly. I like it, I like it. What's going to happen in the last 10 minutes, who knows? So, last (laughs) question from uh, Twitter from um, NW Maths teacher, what's the most dangerous myth or fad Adam has come across in his teaching career?
1: Marking is a bad one um, and marking is both a myth and a fad and a fetish. It's yeah. masochism. Um, it's so difficult. You know, part of me is minded to like take the easy way out and say building learning power or the Bono's hats or whatever. Mm. But like, what is it that caused people to fall for that nonsense? Isn't that, a bigger problem. Yeah. And I just wonder if we talk a lot about criticality and teaching teachers to be critical consumers of research and to be reflective. And my experience is just the exact opposite that we aren't. And I wasn't, and I wasn't for a very, very long time. And I, I worry that all of the fadism and nonsense stems back to that kind of simple Point, which is that we don't know, we don't agree, what good teaching looks like. I've tr- I wrote a four hundred page, one hundred thousand word book about what I think good science teaching looks like, and I'm very clear. I've nailed my flags to the mast. To the mast, this is what I think good looks like. I don't I don't hit that standard every lesson for sure, mm. but this is what I think good looks like. But that in itself is different to the norm, because the norm is. Whatever. Yeah. Or differentiate. What does that actually mean? Well, you know, it's just, you know, different colored worksheets or whatever. Okay. What's going to go on the worksheets easier work. How am I going to know it's easier? Well, it's on a different colored worksheet, right? (laughs) (laughs) That kind of stuff. So, so I think that there are every myth, every fad is a problem, but they're just branches of a very, very dodgy tree that I think needs to be further examined and, and and it needs to be further examined. And, and again, I, I implicate myself in this without the ideology, without the rhetoric, without the polemic, without the argumentation, without the diatribe, without the venom, without the toxicity. um, We need to be honest uh, and we need to figure out exactly where the problem is that is causing these myths and fads to happen.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Okay, final question from me, Adam. Uh, What is an example of something important you've changed your mind about?
1: I mean, literally my entire teaching philosophy.
0: (laughs) Good good answer. Anything anything recently? So what what I'm interested, just from listening to you speak there, Adam, um, particularly when you're answering that question about getting other colleagues on board and you showing them a way and them saying which you then which which way is best and then kind of agreeing that you're right has there been an instance recently in the last kind of year or so where you've changed your mind about doing doing something a certain way somebody showing you a better way
1: i mean yeah um i get feedback on my teaching the whole time that improves me there's the, the advantage of being in the position that I'm in having come from like ideological certainty and then moving to another pole of ideological certainty mm. and then moving to a school where I've just been given so much useful feedback that's moved me forwards, is that I'm quite fluid with my kind of firm beliefs now which means that it's it's difficult to change your, to say that what you change your mind about, if it's stuff that you were open to being changed about before. Yes. Yes. You know, like for example, um, mini whiteboards. Yeah. <clears throat> I always knew mini whiteboards were great. I just never got into them myself because I thought they were too much effort, <clears throat> but like I wasn't ideologically opposed to using <clears throat> mini whiteboards because I thought they were rubbish or too much effort in the way that I'm ideologically opposed to marking. Yeah. But then when Thanos, my boss is like, you know, that le- he did exactly the same thing that I just said to you before. He's like, you know, that lesson would have been better if you used mini whiteboards. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And now I've, now I've got to go ahead and use them. And now I use them the whole time, literally every single lesson for about 40 to 50% of each lesson, I'm using the mini whiteboards. So, I mean, is, does that count as changing my mind semantics?
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. Good answer. I like it. Right, Adam big three time so this is your opportunity to tell me three websites blog posts whatever you want that you would recommend our listeners check out
1: all right so number one is um teaching secondary science a completely- <laughs>
0: Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Number two carousel. I know where this is going. I'm joking. I'm
1: joking. joking, Of course. I'm joking. Uh, Only partly. I'm joking. Um, The CogSciSci website for sure. So this is for, I mean, it's for science teachers, but for anyone really. And it's just a brilliant collection of resources, um, wisdom about cognitive science in the classroom, practical, um, like practical advice, concrete steps. Uh, We've also got free CPD modules. So like if you want to learn more about retrieval practice, free CPD module, we even send you a certificate afterwards. Um, so that's who, safe, right? who's,
0: who's behind Adam well um, well. it's
1: now Adam Robbins is the managing ah, director okay. uh, managing sorry is the um, managing editor um, he's in charge uh, he's great he just finished a book as well called middle leadership mastery which I'd highly recommend um, uh, second is Joe Kirby's back mm. so for those who are like really long of tooth like I am uh, Joe Kirby wrote a blog called pragmatic reform which was like groundbreaking um, and especially like some of his blogs on workloads, and I think mm-hmm. the blog um, was it called uh, Teaching Hornets, just mm-hmm. brilliant. Joe used to be at Michaela Community School. He's now working with Greenshaw, uh, and he vanished for yeah. like four years, um, but he's now back and he's tweeting and he's blogging, and I definitely recommend. Um, and then finally, just um, Lamov. Everything, the more you can get your hands on. So Teach Like a Champion 2.0, Teach Like a Champion 3.0, the Teach Like a Champion blog, just the works, everything.
0: Get it, do it, read it that's brilliant fantastic adam well this has been a long time coming getting you on the show for a, a proper chat we kind of tease listeners with uh, your appearance in the lockdown specials but th- this is this has been great and um, I, I genuinely mean this I, I've, I've loved your writing for a long time uh, your tweets in particular again you, you, you well it's a bit of a cliche to say you're not afraid to uh, speak your mind but Again, Twitter can be a funny place and particularly in the current time when we're recording, this it's all kicking off left, right and centre. Nobody can say anything without it being taken the wrong way. But I, I always appreciate reading your tweets and I've always loved your blogs and your book's fantastic. I'll tell you what's interesting about your book as well as it being brilliant. Your um, The kind of testimonials at the start, for a start they go on for about 20 pages and they're unbelievable, right? Like you've got the big names from all over the place, and they're absolutely absolutely loving the book, and for, for good reason. It, it really is a fantastic read. And I've really really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope some point in the future we can we can have another one here, Adam, because there's at least three or four other big areas that we uh, we haven't had a chance to dive into today. So, Adam Boxett, thank you so much for your time uh joining Thanks, us on great. the podcast. Cheers, mate. Bye. So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Adam Boxer. I'm dead grateful to Adam. Um, he's <laughs> given giving giving up his time to speak to me late at night after a full day of teaching. Uh, he's got a couple of kids on the go as well. He had to hang his washing out at one point. There's a little behind the scenes exclusive for you. Uh, so it's all it was all kicking off, but I'm really grateful for Adam giving up his time and I could have spoke to him all evening. Um, I don't want to take up too much time here in the takeaways because I think Adam articulated his ideas super, super clearly. And honestly, I'm not, I am not. promise I'm not just saying this. His book is absolutely fantastic, super relevant to maths teachers. I can't think of any subject that it wouldn't be relevant to. Um, so I really, really recommend uh, that you dig into his book to learn more about some of the ideas that Adam spoke about in our conversation. Uh, but just three things I wanted to reflect upon briefly in these takeaways. Uh, the first, I really like this concept of would trees would um, when i was reading the book it was one of the things that that stood out to me i, I like um we, we've spoke about this before when doug lamov was on the show and also in, in in other conversations that this this idea of, of getting a shared vocabulary uh, either between teaching colleagues or teachers and students is, is really important so everybody knows what what they're talking about And as Adam pointed out himself, sometimes you have to um, (laughs) make something up. Um, You have to come up with invent your own word or phrase um, if if the thing you're looking for doesn't quite exist. And I really like this idea of wood, trees, wood. Now, in terms of um, applying this to to mathematics, I think in terms of my teaching and planning anyway, the simplest way is to think of that initial wood as, as the big picture. So whenever I'm introducing a new idea, or concept to students I always like to think how does this link into things that students have encountered in the past now that's not just necessarily a check of prerequisite knowledge what I'm thinking about here is is the journey of mathematics the story of mathematics how does this new thing that we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple of weeks directly connect to something that you did last month or last year or back in primary school now what that does as well as provided an opportunity to assess that prerequisite knowledge it also connects the new to something that students are familiar with and ideally something that they're comfortable with and to use the examples that Adam spoke about when he was using maths examples it hopefully allows a bit of a window a bit of an insight for the students into how this new idea not only fits into what they've experienced before but potentially how it works and that's why I really liked Adam's um, uh, the way he explained the multiplying decimals connecting it to things that students are familiar with either the notion of estimation or the notion of multiplying with integers and then we introduce this new thing So we start with the wood, this big picture, linking it to what's come before, then comes the trees, so that in terms of mathematics may be the the procedure that we're teaching our students, explicitly teaching them the method, the procedure for doing things. And it can involve different representations, However, however we choose to explain these ideas to our students, but then we zoom back out again and the wood comes back into play. And now students are a bit more confident, a bit more competent with this new idea. So at this stage, they may be able to see all the connections with things that they've done in the past, or they may be ready to dive deep into the intricacies of why this new idea works. And this then links to this this notion of how versus why, how before the why that we spoke about over many years on this podcast. So I really, really like this idea of wood trees wood. I think it's, a good thing to have in mind when I'm planning out a sequence of lessons. And of course, that second wood, that doesn't necessarily have to come at the end of that particular learning episode. That could come a few months later or a year later whenever a new idea is introduced to students that unlocks the, the, the secret as to why this previous thing worked. So I really like that. That's something worth investigating. Wood, trees, wood. Um, I, I'm so pleased that we got to speak about retrieval and it wasn't on my original list of questions just because i thought that is a mammoth topic that's just potential to spiral over and take take up the entire podcast but i couldn't resist just asking adam a little bit about it cuz i wanted him to speak about carousel cuz i think it's a fantastic platform but what what an important point that adam made about how you can design the best retrieval platform uh, in the world. But if if the kids aren't buying into it, if the kids aren't taking it seriously, then it's an absolute waste of time. And this is what I've spoke about over the last few years, this illusion of retrieval. And after speaking to Adam, I was thinking about how how we get students to take things a bit more seriously. And I I think there's two things um, that, that spring to mind that teachers can do. I think the first one... Teachers need to value retrieval as much as they value new learning, and I know I never used to do that. For me, my job as a teacher was to keep teaching new stuff, new stuff, new stuff, the stuff that kids didn't know. That was the exciting thing. That was, that was my purpose. But then I was forever getting frustrated when kids kept flipping forgetting things, and I was in this, in this cycle of teach it, review it, they've flipping forgotten it, so teach it again. And it was an absolute disaster. So now I value retrieval just as much as I value new learning. And that means that if I'm doing a do now activity or whatever we want to call it, and particularly if it's a case of um, assessing students prerequisite knowledge for an idea that we're about about to introduce to students, I have to make sure I give that sufficient time. And if that understanding is clearly not there in the room... Then it's putting a pause on whatever I was about to do and, and helping helping students get to the point where they do understand it, where they are confident in it. And I think what I've certainly noticed, and I've noticed this myself, but also when I'm lucky enough to watch, watch other teachers teach, is when teachers value retrieval as much as new learning, then the kids start to value it as well. If kids see starters as just something the teacher does, uh, puts on the board whilst they sort out the register then where's your incentive to take it seriously? And I've, I've spoken about this over the last few years as well, that I've spoke to kids when I've been watching lessons and I've said, what what do you, what do you think the purpose of the starter is? And they've, they've said, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just so Mist can keep us busy or just so Sir can keep us busy whilst they sort stuff out. And then those same kids who are kind of sitting off during the starter, all of a sudden when they're kind of in inverted commas lesson begins when the new learning starts then all of a sudden they perk up they're attentive and so on so I think first off teachers need to uh, value retrieval as much as new learning um, and then hopefully students will but the second thing is I think it's really important that we explain to students in whatever level we feel is appropriate why these retrieval opportunities are so important and whether this is a case of showing them a diagram of the forgetting curve whether it's talking about Bjork's concept of retrieval and storage, strength of memories, whatever it is, I think it's one thing saying to kids, look, this is important, but it's another level if we can, if we can say, look, this is important because of this. And that diagram of the forgetting curve and the way that the slopes kind of flatten out after every retrieval opportunity, I found that super powerful. I've been lucky enough to use that with primary school students right up to uh, further maths year 13 students. I think it's a real powerful visual that says to kids, every time you put effort in to think hard about something that you've done in the past, you are, you, you're you kind of cheating your brain. You, you're slowing down this rate of forgetting. You, you're getting one over on all the other students who aren't doing this. But as I say, you, you, know, you know what to say to your kids to get them on board. But I think telling them the why, why we're doing this retrieval um, is really important. And that's true whether it's something you're doing in class or something you're doing on homework, whether it's carousel, whether it's diagnostic questions, whatever it may be. It's so important that the kids understand why they're doing that. And the final thing I just wanted to reflect on briefly is silence. Um, I really liked Adam's uh, thoughts on silence. Um, he's tweeted about this as, as well. Um, and I just wanted to expand on something I was saying Um, in the conversation with Adam about silent teacher. Now, I'm a huge advocate of silent teacher. It's revolutionized my my worked examples. I really, really like doing it. And very rarely will I do a worked example that doesn't involve some form of silence at some point during that process because I really find it helps direct students' attention. It focuses students' attention. It removes the noise in every sense of the word, noise in terms of actual noise and noise in terms of redundancy. And it just allows them to focus on, on what's happening on the board. But as I, as I alluded to with Adam, when we tried this with, with Edie, it's not popular at all with students in terms of watching online videos. And I've really come to, to the conclusion that there are two reasons for that, both of which involve the role of the teacher. First, the teacher's the one, and this relates to something I've just said before, who can hopefully help show students why this is an important thing to do. So when I first do silent teacher, I try and just kind of set kids up by saying, look, I'm going to remove all the noise. I'm not going to be saying anything. So you can concentrate exactly on what I do without having to worry about anything else. I'm not going to ask you any questions. You're not going to need to speak. You don't need to write anything down. Just watch. And as you watch, try and think, what have I just done? And what am I going to do next? That's all you need to do. Now, of course, you can have some kind of talking head saying that before the start of a video online, but nothing beats that teacher who hopefully you know and trust over the last few years saying that to you and kind of creating that atmosphere within the classroom where it's a focused, calm, atmosphere ready to get the most out of out of silent teacher so i think that's the first thing that's that's lacking from from online videos with that and it's the first kind of necessary part of the process within the classroom to get to make silent teachers as effective as possible and the second is gestures. Uh, The more I think about this, the more I realize how gestures are important and the more I'm lucky enough to watch teachers delivering Silent Teacher and if I ever am brave enough to to video myself and watch me uh, trying to do Silent Teacher, The way it works best is when when teachers are really explicit and have carefully thought about the gestures that they make and gestures can be something as simple as pointing to the part of the board that we want students thinking about the part of the working out the part of the example that we want kids focusing on at this point or it can be gestures in terms of the expressions that we make on our faces whether it's surprise when we write something down that perhaps the students weren't expecting Or perhaps it's it's sometimes teachers do it when they do a kind of deliberate mistake during a worked example and then they like put a shocked face up and then cross it out and so on. But that role of it as a teacher, as an actor, I think is so important. And that doesn't mean I know there are lots of teachers and I've been there myself who who are quite introverted and, and don't like, don't like, certainly would feel very much out of place doing any form of acting in front of an audience. I'm I'm not talking that, it's the subtle things that we as teachers do, gesturing with our hands, with our bodies, with our faces, that, that really help focus students' attention. And that's what it's all about in Silent Teacher. Focusing students' attention, allowing them to cut through the noise and focus on the critical part of the process that you want them thinking about at any given moment. And that's what we as teachers can do in the classroom but what um, a highlighted uh, cursor or pointer on a video simply can't replicate. So anyway, there's just a few thoughts, uh, but I, I thought this was a wonderful episode. It's one of those I'm going to return to, and hopefully I can get Adam back on at some point in the future, because I think the more he teaches and the more he's a very reflective person, the, the more he's going to learn and change his mind on things and develop new ideas and yeah, I just, I just want to be in the in the privileged position to to learn from that. So, um, massive thank you to Adam for giving up his time, um, and please do consider getting his book. Um it's, it's an absolute great one. Oh, I'll tell you what, you can do me a favor. If you do think about getting this book, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to, to the Amazon page. If you can click through that, I get about 20p or something back from that. If you click on it, it's an affiliate link. You pay the same price. But I'll tell you what, those 20ps, they, they add up. Um, if, if everyone bought that, I'd be absolutely flipping laughing. So anyway, just consider doing that uh, if you don't mind. Anyway, all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And as I said at the uh, the intro, a massive thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners. We're six years into this podcast. Can you believe it? Um, I'm thinking over the course of 2022 to uh, keep the podcast going. Uh, if it feels like it's getting stale, I'll take a break. If if I, if it feels like it's getting really, really stale and I'm not offering anything new, then I'll knock it on its head. But fingers crossed for the time being, um, things are going all right. And that's all thanks to my brilliant guests, my fantastic guests, and to you, my lovely, loyal listeners. So if you're listening to this in December... Uh, of 2021 when I'm recording this what a tough year this has been um, my teacher friends <laughs> tell me this is the hardest term they've ever had in their lives so if you if you're still going you're still surviving um congratulations hopefully you get a the, the kind of Christmas and New Year break that you deserve to recharge uh, see friends see families just make sure you keep safe And hopefully, um, I will see you in 2022 with some brand new episodes. Thanks so much for all your support. You take care. Ho, ho, ho. And bye for now.